0: Thank you very much for coming. (laughs) We're going to do a brief recap before we get started, but thanks for hanging out with me on Merged Worlds again. Um, I appreciate you swinging by and letting me share my tale. Uh, If anyone has any questions about what we covered previously or what happened in the last episode, feel free to hit me with those, and I'll cover those real quick before we move into the next section. But we're going to continue our tale of Darshan friends, I say it that way because we're in a Darsh-based adventure at this point. I try not to... or please try to excuse my sucking on my chocolate milk... my chocolate milkshake. I uh, went and grabbed a bit of food after the last stream and I wasn't quite done. So, where we left off last episode, um, the Darstopian games had occurred. A huge event people from all around the southern kingdoms had come to participate and compete for prizes, fortune, and fame. Um, It was a big success, uh, although Dandy had this weird feeling the whole time like she was being watched and didn't know why. She was acting a little different than normal, unlike her regular self. As the games were coming to an end and a few of the kingdoms had gone home, the islands of Darstopia were surrounded by a a large army of sea elves who said their princess had been kidnapped by a gnome and they'd found his vessel crashed off the, off the edge of Darshish uh, island and dar said that they were not there the elves accused them of helping the gnome escape they basically said until the princess is returned uh, the sea elves are at war with land dwellers they chased after the gnome Darshan friends caught up to him and her finally to find out that he had not kidnapped her he had rescued her there's a large group of whale sharks that had control over just a massive destructive underwater creature and was basically blackmailing the kingdom for food, treasure and sacrifices this year including the princess of the Elven Kingdom. Uh, Gipper the gnome helped her escape because she was betrothed to his best friend who was an elf. Not knowing what to do at that point, they seek out some help. One of their sea mages, their smages, says that he knows of an oracle far to the east in what is known as the Boneyard Reef that may be able to give them more information about what to do. So they had packed up their ship, the Chimera, loaded on crew and supplies, and headed on a several-week journey to get there. En route, they fought a giant shark-squid successfully, and I think that's pretty much where we left off with last week's adventure. Who knows what this episode will bring? I mean, I do, because I wrote it and I read about it already, but you guys don't, so, you know, (laughs) boo-hoo. All right. So, um, I guess we'll just jump right on in then. Um, I did discuss this with some friends of the channel today. Um, this adventure or story, if will, is actually one of the shorter ones. And we're but maybe just a few weeks away from completing all of the previously played sections of Merge Worlds. And then moving into new content that I've been writing. So, we're not super, super far away from that. Uh, the last campaign was one of the longer ones they had to deal with. I think the only one that was longer was finding the stones themselves at the beginning. Uh, maybe the Rescue Michael section. But yeah, this was that last one was really long. This one's a little bit shorter in comparison. So after, after defeating the giant shark squid, um, taking some miscellaneous body parts for spell purposes, because... Something like that you just don't come across every day. (laughs) Yay for new stuff, says Miss Ashley White in the chat. Yes, I'm excited for the new stuff. I'm excited to share with you guys where I've always wanted to take this. So hopefully you'll find it interesting. They continue their voyage towards the Boneyard Reef. It takes several weeks all in all to get there. It's farther, much further east than Darsh normally has traveled. But they eventually make it. So I've got a little reading section first. The Boneyard Reef is accurately named. Giant bones and skeletons of ancient sea creatures produ- protrude out of the ocean like talons waiting to pull you into the cold depths. You can make up the shapes of dragons and giant turtles with shells the size of buildings. Over hundreds and thousands of years, the reef has grown around these ancient relics. Making your way through the reef is quite difficult, as the bones and coral are quite treacherous. Eventually, the chimera can go no further, and you realize you must go on using a smaller craft. The black water seems dark and foreboding, and you are hesitant to leave the protection of the ship. Sadly, you have no choice. Players usually hate when I say you have no choice. Because then they know they have no choice. So, Darsh and uh, his allies climb down into a... one of the bigger boats that he's got. Rowboats, sideboats, what do you call them. Um, And they load on. Now, it's a minotaur-sized boat, so quite a few people can fit on there. Uh, Darsh hops on and... He does not bring a lot of his crew with him. He brings, of course, Darsh, brings Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy. They also feel it's best to bring Gipper and Nala because they may, you know, she may need to speak to them. Um, as well as um, oh, their uh, mage who told them of it, Morik. Uh, he's, he's, he has to come because he knows the way. He's, he's been very, very subtle about it. Not subtle. He's been very uh, closed-mouthed about it. You know, when, when asking questions, he avoids answering only that he's been, he's been here before. Uh, he, he, he's spoken with her before. He knows that she's here. Doesn't really discuss any of the uh, specifics of that interaction. And thank you, Tobias Kruger, for the sub here on YouTube. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. So, as they move further and further in, Uh, Darsh is doing the rowing, really. Uh, The reef begins to get darker, like almost getting like nighttime and foggier. So it becomes harder and harder to see. They have to go slower and uh, be careful not to run into stuff. Um, The further in they go, the quieter it gets. They hear less and less sounds of birds and things. It's not like there's a lot of birds out in the middle of the ocean anyways, but a place like this, a reef and such, where there's relatively large places above water. You may find some there living off the fish and such, but it gets quieter and quieter as they move their way in. Uh, they travel for a good hour or so, and even though very often they can't see any of the bones or shapes or islands until they're right in front of them, uh, Morak is always ahead of them, saying, Get, move, start moving the board to the left or the right, you know, except he's using actual nautical terms after, whatever they are, I don't know. (laughs) Port, I don't know those things. (laughs) I I, I did look that up back in the day. When we were running these adventures, I I, I learned some of the terminology to make it seem more authentic, but it's been years and I've forgotten it all. So, please forgive me for that. Trying to remember which way the ship is is just like stalactites and stalagmites to me. I I can never remember which ones are which. I've tried a thousand times. I'll never get it right. So... It gets quieter other than just the sounds of water lapping against the coral, the reef, and the bones itself. Porter starboard. that's what I'm saying, I have no idea. I'm sure he's going left or right, whichever one it is. Um, so it takes about an hour or so to maneuver through these. And they feel like they've been literally going through a maze uh, when eventually the fog clears a bit and they find the Oracle's Island. When you actually find the island, you are surprised that it seems to literally be on the back of a gigantic sea turtle corpse. Twisted jungle-like vegetation grows from its from the dark soil on its back, the vines and trees thick. There were no sounds of birds or animals. The air was deathly quiet. Um, so literally it's just a giant corpse. And you can picture the head with the tongue lolled out and... Uh, Parts of the meat exposed where some of the bones are sticking out. Uh, But it's just, you know, half underwater, half above water. Very large. football size stadium, sea turtle. Turtle, regular sea turtle, but large. So they need to leave their boat and get on the island, but they don't see any real easy way to do that. Um, The island itself would require some climbing up the side. And while there's, you know, lots of coral and such on there, so it's not smooth. It is wet and potentially dangerous, and anyone who's ever dealt with coral will tell you that it can be overwhelmingly sharp as well. And you get little bits in your wound, it can become infected very badly. So, I mean, they've got clear healing, so they're a bit above the rest of us, you and I. But still, you don't want to cut yourself on coral. So at this point, they have to find a way out of the boat and on to land. So they go there, good old-fashioned flying carpet. So they get out the flying carpet, and uh, they tie the boat off as best they can to bone or coral or something. Thank you, Neighboro, for the sub. I appreciate that. Uh, YouTube, on YouTube. Um, But yeah, so they tie it off as best they can, and then they climb on the carpet, because there's a bunch of them, it takes two trips. Uh, But they get everybody up on top of the island relatively easy, using the flying carpet. Mark starts leading them through the jungle. And again, it, 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 while he doesn't say a whole lot, it, it definitely feels like he knows exactly where he's going. If you're wondering if you're ever going to find out why the story behind that, I haven't told it yet. So, <laughs> giving you that clue. Don't think that's coming anytime soon. So, he knows the way again. avoids talking about it as best he can. He only says that he's made this voyage before. Um, So they're hacking their way up, and they're they're going up as well, right? You can imagine the shell's relatively domed, so it's like a giant hill. It's not super steep, but it's still up. Uh, And they travel for a good distance uh, until they finally come to a small clearing with a stone circle in the middle. Um, And in that circle, carved into the shell itself, are a set of stairs spiraling going down. Mork advises them they will need to enter into here in order to speak with Kadira. Um He recommends that he goes first. So they all start making their way down inside this turtle. Now, you think, mm, big turtle corpse, that's probably pretty stinky. Not really. Um, well, it can be a little funky. it's A lot of it's grown over with coral and stuff, so it's just the smell of the salt and the smell of the jungle there's dirt and stuff that's built up on it over years yep. like i said there's trees and such it has the standard jungle by the sea kind of smell but the cadira appears lives in the shell itself um, got it very cool sir lives inside the corpse of the turtle intriguingly that i said that at that perfect timing so as they make their way down inside the corpse of the turtle, into its shell. Um, They go down quite a distance. Um, In fact, by their reckoning, they're below sea level before the stairs finally end. When they do, they walk just a short distance through what looks almost like a natural tunnel, very rounded. Uh, Darsh is just a smidgey short, or just a smidgey, has to duck just a smidge to get through. Um, But they make their way through, and they enter into what I can only describe as a grotto-like cave. So, the grotto-like cave, imagine a circle, right? With a smaller circle in it against one side. Kind of like a Mickey Mouse eyeball, if you think about it, right? The small part is a pool of just black water that just has a bit of a flow to it. And the rest of that is like rocks and sand that um, just make up the rest of the rounded cave. It's mostly rounded. Not too late, Bragg. Just a couple minutes. Ahead. So, I will say that, I ha- as I have it written here, uh, it is filled with classic witch stuff hanging around. So, all the stuff you'd expect in something of this nature. You know, shells and bird wings and all that kind of stuff. Um, just lots and lots of the traditional witch themed items you'd expect to find, um, including Kadira herself. Now, Mark has told you a decent about that she is not to be trusted but can be trusted. And that sounds odd. so let me let me clarify. She can be trusted to tell the truth as long as it's in her best interest. She will, and he stresses this: she will keep to any bargain made. She will not go back on a bargain, and that's important—not um, just for just you know for them being successful, but for uh, the Oracle. Yes, the Oracle—that it is important for her. She will always keep to a bargain, and that's kind of a, a chunk behind her magic. You know what I mean? Uh, and he explains that he goes the bargain is everything. Because when you enter into a bargain with her, it's magically sealed. If you break that bargain, then that seal is broken and technically curses and bad stuff will happen to you until you either make restitution or get back and complete the bargain. But in order to enter that type of spell, to put that kind of giss on you, it also has to go on her. And she accepts that. So... I made it quite clear ahead of time that they need to watch their wording, right? Uh this is going to be kind of like um a dragon or a Dungeons and Dragons wish, right? I've talked to you guys about wishes before. You tell me what you wish, but the any wiggle room you give me to screw with you, I'm going to do that. Not in a mean way to kill you, but you know, just cuz that's the kind of guy I am. So, you know, if you wish, you know, I was super strong, you could smell bad. I mean, that's just a very vague, silly one. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to be very specific. A bargain is the same way. A genie thing, very much so. You have to be careful because, especially when you're getting this from someone who is evil, they will always try to twist it in their benefit. Doesn't necessarily mean they're out to screw you. You can be evil and not want to hurt anybody. You just want to do well for yourself. You, you do well on yourself regardless of the effects on others. Doesn't mean you naturally seek out to harm others, but if that happens, you don't shed a tear. So, something along those lines. So, when they enter in and they see Kadira, they're surprised to find out uh, the one important fact he did not re- mention in that she is a Naga. A Naga is a sea-like race. Hey Patchy. Is a sea-like race uh, that are very serpent-like in nature from the waist down, kind of a medusa-like kind of thing. Um, Not with the turning you to stone thing. In fact, many of them are very, very attractive. Um, But they're usually their body is a little bit larger in scale than a human's, but they're more longer than height. Standing up, she probably stands about six to seven feet tall, uh, proportionately a little bit so. But she's probably at least ten feet long when you take in the serpent. And the tail end doesn't come always straight into an end. Very often it ends in what you'd expect to be a bit more of a fish-like fin type kind of thing. Because they're very fast underwater. Um, Our heroes know of Naga, though I don't think there's ever been a situation where they've had to deal with them maybe once, but not a lot. Um, but it only takes one look to tell that she is an incredibly old one. Ancient, you could almost say. Um, she, but you see that she is... One thing that's very noticeable right off the bat is that she's covered in jewelry, right? Tons of jewelry. She's got bangles on, she's got earrings, and multiple earrings, necklaces, uh, just stuff all over the place. So, she's not wearing really anything in the way of clothing, because Naga just don't care. Um, But tons of jewelry. Um, So, they enter inside, and there's one thing they notice is there's no sign of a bed. so She just curls up and sleeps on the floor, or she sleeps somewhere else. There's that pool of water in the corner. This may not be the only chamber that she has. Not only is she a sorceress-type person, and it's a... Uh, yes, very much so. Um, it's Not only is it a situation where she's a sorceress, she, the one necklace that Artemis immediately notices is the holy symbol of the god of the sea. So she's also a cleric of the ocean. Uh, very old, multiple jewelry... She speaks immediately upon en- them entering in perfect common, the common language, that uh, she's, w- welcome, please, come on in. She's been waiting for you. Um, as she was expecting them. Uh, invites them in. She can. St- she- they see that there's already some chairs set out. Uh, even one strong enough to hold darsh. And there's exactly the amount of chairs as there are them. Um... The heroes very much get, right off the bat, this is a thing I stress to them, that as she begins talking, and just the beginning is just kind of rambling. It's, ah, so glad you made it. Many people have a hard time finding the place. I see you had a friend guide you through. Hello again, Mark, and things of that nature. The first feeling that they get from her is that she's genuinely happy that they're there. She's not angry. What are you doing on my island? Nothing like that at all. They're like, excellent, I've been expecting you. So glad you could make it, Um, which to them is actually makes them a little bit more wary and off-putting because, again, they know she's, you know, well, not seeking out to do evil things. What is, you know, what may they be asked of in order to participate? Magical emotions? Eh, Not so much. Uh, Like, she genuinely is happy to see them, but they don't know why. She explains that they, she knows why you have come. I did mention in the last episode that she's also an oracle. She is gifted with some type of oracle prophecy like sight uh, to know things that are happening or have happened or may. Um, Mork did not know the extent or strength of that power, only that it's something that she has. Okay. Um, let's see. What are you here? She explains already that she knows why they've come. That they want to know about Euroclidon, the ancient one. Now, Euroclidon, the ancient one, that's that big old creature that the were-sharks have that destroyed an elven city. A massive beast, which I've not physically described, because technically, no one they've talked to has actually seen it yet. But it's big! So, she says that, uh, begins to explain what little she knows of Euroclidon. Does anyone in chat know how to rule PC's breaking laws? Not sure what that means. Um, explains that Euclidin is an ancient beast from an ancient world, um, and he would not serve or assist the were-sharks willingly, that they would have to have in their position either an item or magic of incredible power in order to control such a beast. Can I describe you what it looks like? I can, yes, but not yet. There's a reason no one here has seen it, and that's kind of why it ha- no one here has, other than maybe her, has seen it yet. But I will describe it in the future, yes. You will get to see it, but at this point, no one's been able to describe it because none of these people, Gipper... Now, they not see it. It attacked another village or another city, but they've never seen what it looks like. They've only heard rough descriptions. She tells them that if they would... That in order to um, break the power, oh hello, number to break the power that controls the Yorquledon, um, they would have to literally either disrupt that spell or break the item that the uh, sharks are using to control it. Again, it has to be something of pretty power, pretty powerful, but um, you know, that kind of thing is something that they're going to have to deal with, right? Although she warns them that doing so may be even more dangerous. Because once free, he'll be enraged. He probably knows he has no choice. Once he's free of that control, he's going to be furious. And will likely lash out at anything and everything around him. Including the Elven Kingdom. Which could just literally slaughter thousands. Our heroes are like, well, we we don't want them to be able to use him but at the same time we don't want to do anything that's going to slaughter the people we're trying to make friends with we're not trying to kill the elves we're trying to bring peace to them here we understand they're in a rough spot we're trying to help everybody by taking care of this problem so darsh says kadira of course only smiles when she hears that she says ah yes but i have to warn you you're no match for him your Oclodin is all but basically immortal there's not a force that I know of in this world that could de- destroy him. But there may be a way to quell his rage and hold him off from the elves. Our heroes are like, excellent, good. Maybe if we can't we're not necessarily need to kill him, technically, even though he's a big old monster creature that tore up a city. He's kind of a victim in this too. And that's kind of how they looked at it. They're like, we don't know if that creature's good or evil or not. He could be a good dude, or he could be evil. Either way, he has no control. He's being enslaved as well, so you know they can keep him calm and stuff. He may be an ally, or at least not kill everybody. Um, let's see. In Merge World specifically, can specific items hold more powerful enchantments? Like, can jewels hold magic connections better than, say, wood? Um, it's going to depend on the spell. That's a good question. We'll take a moment to discuss that. So, Dungeons & Dragons, in general, kind of covers that in actual magic item creation. I haven't looked it up as much in the current Dungeon Master Guide, but in all the ones before it, it goes through quite a bit of detail. Specific types of spells are normally going to be attracted to specific things. If you're trying to create a weapon, for example... Um, it's almost always going to be more beneficial the, the more pure the metal is. So if I'm making something that I want to fight lycanthropes specifically, like, say, a shark, then something of a pure, blessed silver is going to be way more powerful than something that's wood. So in many of those situations, yes. Um, some things are going to hold better, like wood, for example. You're creating a wand Some stick you found in the backyard, probably not going to do it. But certain trees and certain woods are going to hold enchantments better than others. There are exceptions to every rule. You'll remember way back in the day when Dandy and Artemis and Michael were fighting Draven's evil brother. They had a knife of some type of unbreakable crystal. Not something you'd normally expect to find a knife. But that was not a magic item, that was an artifact. So when creating an artifact, some of those rules go out the window, because you're creating something of such power, you're imbibing whatever item or material that you're casting it on. So, again, it can differ. Um, I would be willing to say this. The more powerful the spellcaster, the less important the material is. You know what I mean? I'm a level 5 and I'm trying to make a magic wand, I need a wand that's going to be able to hold the power and do it better. I'm level 20 making a wand, I might be able to grab a stick out of the backyard because I'm so powerful, I can imbue almost anything. Uh, not that other things still wouldn't be better for me. Uh, you are very welcome for that. Thank you for the question. Good question. I will now take a sip of my milkshake. So again, she says, there may be a way to quell his rage and hold him off from the elves. Monander is an artifact. You are, you're, in my experience, you're never going to find an intelligent magic item. Almost everything intelligent is an artifact. There are a couple very minor rules aside from that. Um, But almost anything intelligent that can speak to any degree, whether it's physically or telepathically, is going to be some type of artifact. Menandra is a -a once-in-a-lifetime type kind of artifact created of materials you can't normally find and blessed by an incredibly high paladin cleric at the moment of her death. And then not only did he cast the magic to imbue it, her soul went into it as well with the assistance of a god. Like, that all happened in that flamey mountain. Remember, a spirit took him over and smiled and handed them, because it was a god who knew the truth. It was, even in a even a reliving of the history, the power of the god is enough to know that. So, that was literally a god-blessed item. That one was an artifact of incredible power, which is why Menandra can do so much. Um, so, yes, Menandra is very much so an artifact and is the only one in existence of its nature. Again... Very good question. So, they're like, okay, cool. Well, there's, there's something out there that can help quell the rage. Excellent. What is that? And then, after sharing all this information, she leans back and gets a bigger smile. And She says, well, now that information... That information will cost you. I mean, I've just been handing out information... left and right since you guys got here... A lady has to keep a little something for herself. Darsh can see Morik's hands clenching and tightening, because like he's been expecting it. He's been waiting for that moment, because they're like, okay, she's being pretty cool so far. All right, maybe our, you know, at first their thoughts were maybe she's happy to see us. She's not going to screw us over because maybe what we want to do is benefiting her in some way. Helping us is really helping her, because that can happen. Something you do. You get rid of a threat in the ocean... Well, it might be been a threat against her too. Now she's going to be more powerful in the area. And that's kind of where they were hoping I was going with this. It was not. She says that... Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, She says there, there is an item specifically... And it is a very, very powerful... Weapon slash artifact. That she is aware of its location. But... That type of information costs. And they're like, okay, what do you want? And in this situation, Darsh was doing a lot of the talking. Historically, in most of our adventures, Artemis and Mercy are the primary characters. Um, Artemis and Mercy are usually the default characters. Because you remember, both of my players are playing two characters. Darsh and, uh, Darsh and Artemis are one person, and Mercy and Dandy are one person. So very often, the default, when someone just starts talking, I know it's almost Artemis or or, or Mercy. But in this storyline, Darsh really came to the forefront. Uh, Mercy was still Mercy. Uh, But Darsh is very, very uh, for it as well. And uh, Artemis did a good... Young lady played Artemis, and Darsh did a really good job of separating those two characters and make them very distinct. She says, well, I'll tell you. Approximately nine days away to the east, there's a sunken ship. An elven ship that sunk long and long ago. Now, there is something on the ship that I would like. The ship, known as the Fathom, sunk, and in that ship, you'll find the remains of its captain. If you can bring me the captain's locket and his compass. I will tell you what the artifact is and where you can find it. And they're like, that's it? I'm like, yeah. What do they do? She goes, doesn't matter. Bring those to me and I will give you the information that you seek. I'll tell you what the artifact is and I will tell you where it is. Now, during this conversation, as she's speaking, uh, both my characters are looking at her, and I can see they're following my wording. Because they're looking at the wording to see, how am I trying to screw them? You'll tell us what it is and where it is exactly, because I will tell you who has it and where you can find that person. And you're like, okay, that's close enough. All right, you know who has it. And where that person is. And she says, yes, that is correct. And that is information I will give you... If you bring to me... The locket and the compass. And they're like, "Is that's it. Nothing else on the ship. No more, no less. Those are the only two things we have to give you... To fulfill our side of the bargain. They were very close, good about this. And she says, yes. Those are the only two things you have to do. Bring me the locket. Bring me the compass... And both of them, I assure you, are on that sunken ship. They're like, okay, and they imagine they sat there together and they talked for a few minutes. They looked at the wording, tried to find loopholes, anything they could find. They went ahead and they accepted that bargain. They could find no flaw in the in the wording. And I'm not saying I was trying to get, cause them a problem. As for them, that's that's their job to figure that out. What was supposed to be the catch? I don't know. Was there one? They agree to the bargain. She says, excellent. The ship is nine days away. I must, of course, tell you that the ship is haunted by the spirits of those who sunk with it, as well as another type of demon. But, you know, I'm sure you'll have no problem making it through that. didn't ask if it was going to be hard to get it or not. They just were sure that that was the only things they had to do. So they're like aha. Okay. So it's not easy to get to. She's like if it was easy to get to why would I need you? And they're like understandable. Okay obviously she believes we're capable of doing it or she wouldn't be wasting her time on us. So they view that as at least a good sign. So they agree, and they go to leave, and as they do, Mork tells them he'll be back, he'll catch up in just a minute. Mork stays behind and chats with her for just a moment or so. A conversation that was not shared with them at any time. Just saying. So they find out it's going to take nine days to get to the location. And she gives them literally like a rolled-up chart kind of thing and say, here's a nautical chart, here's where you're looking to go, here's a small island, a landmass, and here's the signs you need, including the navigational signs. Because remember, one thing about merged worlds is that the stars do not move. The stars are always in the same location. So everyone has had to completely relearn navigation because while the stars themselves don't move as you cross merge world some stars are no longer in your sight and new ones can appear so the chart that she gives actually comes with some navigational information which would be key for them to be successful or once they return to the ship he gives that to gasket who's his navigator his gnome and his inventor And Gasket immediately goes about making a a copy of this in as much detail as he possibly can. Dandy assists, because Kender are naturally good at map making. Um, They do this in case she requests it back. It's some really good information of waters he doesn't normally enter, so it's something that he considered relatively valuable itself. So he did ask me... Is there? Can I make a copy of this? I'm like, yeah, Gasket and Dandy together could do a really good job. And they work on that over the next few days. Now, I told you about the magical chokers that they've got, right? We talked about that last time. Some chokers they can put on that will let them breathe underwater and uh, be able to see underwater and even be able to speak to each other Underwater, though that's not at great distance. You wouldn't be able to... Even if you could see someone far in the distance, they won't hear you. You'll have to be pretty close, and the sound will be warbled. I mean, it will have... won't be as clear as normal. And so they make their way. It does take nine days to get there. It doesn't take long to get out of the, um... Bone Reef. Again, Mork seems to have a very, uh... uh experienced knowledge of the area and is able to help navigate the ship through without any issues. So they make their way there nine days. They have no issues between now and those nine days. Right? They manage to travel perfectly fine. No battles. No interruptions. No problem. Until they finally arrive in the location that she gave them. Now... Some of the notes and information she gave is approximately how deep it is. I don't have written down how deep it is. But I can tell you it takes 30 minutes to get all the way down. Now, they'll sink. They get in the water, they're going to sink. But it's 30 minutes down. Did I have a plan in case they didn't take the deal? Of course I did. Because they had other options. They could say, okay, we know there's an item out there. Maybe we could find somebody else who knows. So I had a secondary quest they could go on to try to find it without catching a deal with her. So I did have another route for them to possibly find something, but it would have taken them longer, which could have had more repercussions down the road. So, and specifically, I would say that. I mean, when they got that point, they're like, "Oh, this bad things happened. If you'd been here sooner, it may not have." Um, so there was an alternate path they could have taken, uh, but the repercussions for doing so would have been something they would have felt later. Um. This way was the primary way, and the way I was hoping. And I was careful not to make the, uh, the the deal seem too bad. So they, as I said, it takes it's going to take them. I have written down thirty three minutes, thirty three minutes after jumping overboard to sink down. Now, who's going to go? Well, obviously Darsh, Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy. They're all going. They want Nyla and Gipper to stay on the ship. Gipper, not a warrior. It's a Tinker Gnome, not a fighter, not going to be able to do much. And while Nyla doesn't need a choker, she can breathe under there just fine. Uh, she's a princess, and they're trying to save the world. This is one of those, hey, if we're not back in this long, go back and give them give the their, 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 their and Gipper and see if we can save them. You know? So while they don't want to turn them over, they also don't want the rest of their kingdoms and allies to be destroyed by the elves either. So they stay on. So it's our four heroes. They do take Morric, who again is a sea mage. And they leave the other sea mage on the ship. Again, in case something happens, he doesn't return. They've got one sea mage there. The only other person that they bring with them, I believe, was Rokar. Let me check. Yes, Rokar, who historically up to this point has been a cap- is now, was now a captain of one of Darsha's other ships, did tag along that ship and crew uh are staying at Darstopia currently. Darsh has all his ships in, not going out on the water. He's not trying to tempt fate with any of his crew. So they make their way down. 33 minutes. Um, it's cold. It's very cold. Very chilly. Not like enough to kill you, but it's very cold. The choker doesn't do a whole lot to temperature. Does nothing to temperature above the water. Underwater helps just a smidge. And they have to search for the ship. The ship's not just like they don't land right on top of it, you know. Even with the ship and navigation, you're, you know, we're, we know we're within a kilometer. So they start searching, and they do it kind of in a spiral. They start just kind of going further and further, wider around, so that hopefully they don't miss anything. So they do stay close together because they were warned it's haunted by the those who sunk with it, and another demon of the sea in that area. Um, uh, did you sit there and talk to them for 33 minutes while they're saying, no, no, no. I just told them 33 minutes. Uh, it's one of those things where I'm like, you, it takes you 33 minutes to get down. Um, or I'd be like, it would take you 33 minutes to get down, but 15 minutes in about that time. You know, that's kind of how I normally knock that out. It's like, you know, it'll take 33 minutes, but you're only halfway down before sharks or whatever the case may be. As they're, you know, they're wandering around, it takes a few hours until they finally see in the distance, relatively close distance, because they don't have that good of information underwater. Their normal improvision is poop underwater. But this one is, is the, the, the chokers' help. So as they, they see what appears to be the remains of ship, and again, it's been sunk for a while, so it has a little bit of coral and stuff on it as well. Um, And this area is just slightly rocky, not too bad. I mean, they can just kind of, they've got a little bit of that moon gravity concept, right? They're not walking around like it's dry land, but they're able to walk along the bottom a lot easier than they would if they didn't have the chokers. They can do them moon jumps, they get some jump on there, so they're able to bound across relatively quickly. Sure enough, as soon as they're within sight of the ship, they see what appear to be people moving around on it they can barely see them and they appear to glow a little bit but there are somewhat ghostly figures moving around on the ship even in there's a hole there's several holes in the side of the ship uh, that Darsh asks can I tell what kind of damage they were I'm like you can tell that it was damaged from the outside in you can tell that just by the way the woods bent and broken inward he's like okay so something sunk the ship what does that mean Right? Could be a giant arrow, a ballista. Could be cannon, could have been a spell. Could have been a monster. There's no way to tell, only that it's busted from the outside in. And there's no big rocks above the land in this area, so it's not very likely they ran aground in some way. Did I mean coral or barnacles? Both! (laughs) Both, I would say, would be on there, probably. With what little boat knowledge I have. I actually have... Uh, A book. Actually, give me a second. Let me show you guys a book. Look out, kitties. Uh, Here we go. That's the wrong one. I'm always on the lookout for second edition Dungeons & Dragons books that I do not have. Um... And around this time period, as Darsh started having his islands, I realized I needed more information on that type of lifestyle. And so I found a book called Pirates of the Fallen Stars. Um, And this is a guide to everything ocean, from boats, weapons, special spells from that area, naval forces, defenses weapon proficiencies and non-weapon proficiencies and how they're affected um, by living on the ocean. Different types of, different types of boats. How, what type of sail. It's just a, a wonderful resource of boating stuff, regardless of what edition you play. This is a great book. I grabbed the wrong one. First, I grabbed the Draconomicon, which is from the same kind of set. Came out around the same time. But, uh, yeah, Pirates of the Falling Star. Was immensely happy for uh, or uh, helpful for Darsh's stories that we did through this area. All of when we when he first hired Dorum and the crew, we found the different type of crew you would need for certain boats in there, and that's how he knew who to hire, kind of thing. A little peek behind the curtain there for you. So they continue to move closer. They're not like really trying to hide it. There's no way to sneak up, right? It's mostly just rocky ground, but flat. There's nothing to hide behind. It's not like giant rocks. It's just not a very even floor. And they're moving forward, but not like trying to get attention, but they notice that as they're moving forward, the, the ship, at least whatever's on the ship, is not paying any attention. At least it's not reacting to them yet. Although their assumption was... That once they touch the ship or step foot on the ship, that's when they're going to get pulled into dealing with these things. Uh, and a good way to think of that. It's like, okay, if the ship is what they're haunting, you're fine until you're on the ship. So, they get to the ship, and Darsh has decided he's going to go first. Uh, he does like an underwater jump thing, and he jumps up with the gravity and is able to grab onto the side. The boat's tilted sideways. Uh, quite a bit. So it's not much for him to jump up, grab, and pull himself on. Uh, Mercy's planning on going next. Uh, Darsh has a little bit of rope and a grappling hook. He's just going to hook it on the the side of the boat and let the rope fall off so they can pull themselves up. Uh, Because the other option was he stays down there and tosses everybody up. It gives them a boost. uh, But he wasn't comfortable sending other people up there first. Because whoever there first, if it is a situation where these ghost things attack then whoever's there first may have to face them by themselves and darsh in most situations is in the best position to do that so he hops up climbs on hooks his grappling hook and lets the rope fall well he just had the hook and let the rope was already down and he lands on the ship and he's like ha ha and he can see the ghostly figures and they're quite clearly elves sailors moving about even though they're translucent they don't have that much color they're more like whitish blue but their details quite strong even under the water and they're paying him no mind nothing at all in fact they appear to just be wandering around occasionally one looks like it would if there's nothing in its hands but it looks like it's doing something maybe it's pulling a rope or turning a winch or doing something you'll see him reacting to things that maybe aren't right there um, as they're moving around, it's like they don't even know he's there. That's a good question, Turtle. How are they acting? They're acting like they don't even know he's there. Like they are you know, like they still think they're on the, the ship and the surface and they're traveling to wherever they're traveling, right? Um, they believe that they're pulling ropes and raising sails and doing that stuff. That's, they're re- doing what they would have done in life... But uh, even when the things they're trying to grab... Like, there's no mast or sail anymore. Obviously, that's broken long ago. Probably laying on the ground somewhere nearby. A lot of things like that would have... The, the water pressure pulling the sails as the boat sank... Would have very likely snapped the mast off... Causing it to land a distance away. So, Dars like, okay. He starts waving everybody else to come up. Mercy's going to come up next... And Rokar is going to come up last. Because they wanted to leave another Minotaur down there in case somebody does need a boost. A.K.A. Dandy. Or if they need to, you know, something attacks from behind, Minotaur, helpful. Are they conscious or images of once-living sailors? Darsh doesn't know that. So at this point, all he knows is he sees spirits. They appear to be spirits or ghosts or echoes or shades. They are obviously something of the representation of what was here originally. Everyone makes it up to the ship. And they're all just kind of standing there close together with their weapons drawn. They do have their weapons drawn. Until, like, they're just watching and they're being ignored. In fact, several times, as a test, Dar steps forward and they'll walk right through him. As if he's not there. And like, okay, this may work in our favor then. It's possible that they're here. And so my my players then started to think of how this could go bad for them. And, you know, they talk to me about it. You know, they, they, they give me their ideas of what they think is coming. They always do that in the hope that my face will betray whether they've got it right or not. Uh, they've yet to find out whether or not they've got it right or not. I'm good at keeping that t- just to me. Uh, it's a ship that's crashed at the bottom of the ocean. The sailors are on it, but they're acting as if the boat is still sailing. It's like they don't know they're on the bottom of the ocean. They're moving around the boat as if the boat was normally sailing. So you can imagine that the boat's sideways at parts. They're literally walking sideways. They're not, you know, they're not straight up, barely fallen. They're just walking on it like it's normal. It's as if the boat was still sailing above the water and they were alive. Except it's not. There's a huge a couple of huge holes in it, and it's sitting half sideways on the bottom with no sail. So thinking about how uh, what might happen, they came to the assumption. Well, what if we pick up the necklace? And the compass, and now that we've taken something, they're going to defend it. It's a good idea. Sounds like something I'd do. So in this situation, maybe we're smooth sailing until we find what we're here for, then we have to fight our way out. So they proceed to start searching the ship. So they had two thoughts. Thought number one, Captain could be in the captain's quarters. Same assumption, right? Number two, Captain's not in the captain's quarters because whatever sank them, he's probably not sleeping through it. They decide to check the captain's quarters first. They, but, I mean, it's, Darsh knows where a captain's quarters would be. It's pretty easy to know. It's the nice one near the top, right? Darsh the captain. He knows where to find the good spots. I kept joking with them that they opened up the treasure hole and it was just thousands of boxes of wasted, waterlogged pie. And Darsh fell to his knees. And, no, just like all this wasted pie, at the bottom of the ocean, the greatest treasure Darsh has ever seen. <laughs> There's a lot of pie jokes about Darsh in our playing sessions. And I mentioned early on at one point. Where there was like a, they were at some place and he was eating a pie and then it became a thing like Darsh and he's like, huh? And he looks up and there's always like food hanging off his little beard. He's got it's just his hair. And that became a running gag with Darsh too. He'd be like, what do you think, Darsh? And he, during a meal, he'd be like, huh? He looks up and his cheeks are always way too full than they should be and there's just food all over his mouth. The running gag of pie and Darsh enjoying a good meal was uh, something that came just like Mercy enjoying a good bed. It's just one of those things. Dandy's been counting. Smart little lady. And as they're searching the ship, she says that there's well over 20 to 30 sailors that she's seen. Although, even though they're pretty well detailed, she can't get close enough en- enough to say oh, she may see the same one twice. But she's making an estimate. So, when they get to... Like Stringing Bells. There you go. Exactly. Uh, we live for running gags. I love callbacks and I do them as often as I possibly can. A string and a bell. Good good call. Good call, Turtle. So they go into the captain's quarters. Um, and they can tell that it was relatively comfortable, but it wasn't overly lavish. right? Darsh has already ascertained that the ship they're in appeared to be a small naval vessel. It looked like it was built more for war than it was for travel or um, merchant you know, type of things. His view of it and seeing how there's a ballista on the front, elven ballista and things of that nature, the ruins of it... He believes this was some type of smaller naval vessel. Probably either a ship for fighting or a ship for traveling with troops. So finding a comfortable but not overly lavish captain's quarters would make sense... Because not only is he a captain in the captain of a ship sense, he's also very likely a captain as in captain of the Navy military rank. And he has men serving under him in some type of elven Navy. The room is trashed. Um, just very likely where, you know, two reasons. One, it's been underwater for a long time. So anything that was cloth and stuff has probably been eaten away by fish or... Rotted at this point, so anything was blankets or pillows or curtains hanging on a windshield. Uh, anything that wasn't bolted down as the ship sank and, and flipped probably just all went all over the place. Anything that was breakable was broken. Uh, they can see there was a small porthole, a small window he could look out. That's clearly broken at this point. The pieces of what looked like Dark sees what pieces of could be bed or table, but just looking at it, he knows if he picks it up, the wood's just going to crumble in his hands. So they start searching through the mess to try to find stuff. And like I said, the wood is very soft. There's times Darsh has to be careful because his foot does bust through some of the wood while they're walking. He's having to be extra careful to test where he's going. He's the only one with that problem because Darsh weighs, I think at this point, he was 358 pounds. So... Um, he's almost my size. <laughs> uh, fat jokes. But he manages to, to be careful, but he has had a couple instances where he had to roll dexterity to see if he fell over. They get in the ship, and they're searching around, and sure enough, Dandy finds what appears to be a very well-made compass. Um, she brings it over to Darsh to look at it. Darsh picks it up, and he wiped some of the dirt and stuff off it. And just the way it was and buried, it's, it's a little dingy. Probably needed a good cleaning. But it doesn't have a lot of buildup on it. Because it was kind of stuck between wood and such. So it appears to be in relatively good condition. Um, he tries to open it, but it won't open for him. In fact, as he's looking, he can't find any button or latch that would cause it to open. has all the looks of a good compass. He believes that it's a compass. But he has no idea how he would open it. They search around that area. They don't find anything that would be corpse at this point. They, did, you, even, they, don't, they didn't find any bones or anything, right? Stuff gets kept underwater, but even bones and stuff over a thousand years are going to get washed away, turned to dust, and go away in the water. The boat is way better conditioned than it should be right now. I, well, I know that he was 358 pounds because I just recently found his character sheet. I was going through some paperwork, and I found my... I had a copy of all their character sheets, so while I was writing adventures, I knew some of their... I didn't do things that were outside of their capabilities. I didn't want to put them in a spot where they had no hope. So I found my copy of his and Artemis's, because they were played by the same person. I found both of their character sheets, and he was 358 pounds is what she had written down on. Probably not counting armor. It's, it's soaking wet and nude. That's Darsh there. So they don't find any bones, but that doesn't surprise them. Because, again, as long as they were in the water, they haven't seen any signs of corpses other than the ghosts. But they don't find anything. So they decide they're going to start searching the ship. otherwise. words, they have the compass. Darsh takes it, and he puts it in his pouch. There's backpack, side pouch, whatever he's got, fanny pack, whatever Darsh carries. And they... He then is the first one to leave. He's very careful with it. He wants to be the first one to leave the captain's quarters to see if there now ghosts are going to attack him because he has this. But once again, going on deck, the ghosts completely ignore him. Just moving around like they normally would be. One dude kind of, looks like one dude just kind of sitting against the side of the boat taking a nap. You know, somebody's mopping, but there's nothing in his hands. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, they come out and they begin, continue searching the ship. They don't find anything above deck. So they determine they need to go under deck. They need to go below deck, I believe is the term. But the way the ship crashed, it crashed and sunk in. Probably over time, crumbled in a bit. So the lower deck is probably squished more than it normally should be. So as they're making their way down through the only hole they could find that leads down there, because the stairs were completely obliterated and part of the uh, wood above it collapsed, they find one of the holes in the side and decide to go in that way. Well, the holes I mentioned. Darsh is able to fit through swimming forward. Most everybody else could almost step through. They get inside. Now it's darker in here. Their infrovision luckily helps the, the choker's infrovision. But it is not as bright as it was outside. The choker's infrovision not as good as normal. But they get in there and they start searching around. And they find uh, crates or what was probably left of them Probably some ammo, some large ballista giant bolts because they saw, he said, he saw the thing where a ballista was probably on the front at one point. They find some stuff and they start searching around. They find what appears to be a small room, have it, a small room that was locked at one point. I say it looks like that because it's half crushed in at this point. And the door itself stuff is just wedged into it so far there's no opening the door. But looking at the door and the pieces that are there, Darsh can see what appears to be an old lock on it. It's not locked anymore, but the room's also half squished. So they start chipping away and breaking away pieces of this wood. Now, I mentioned the wood's very soft, but this section's very thick. So it takes a while for them to break their way through it. But they eventually do. Darsh finally pops a big piece of the wood off and then hops back quickly as something large and metallic rolls out at him. It settles at their feet and they can see that it is a large chest. Um, Elven in design, still pretty snazzy. Definitely, it's got some dinge on it from being underwater, but still seems pretty watertight. Now, they don't want to mess with it out here. That's something like, hmm, we might want to take that home with us. Darsh tries down and picks it up, and it's heavy. It's real heavy. Darsh is the only one there that could even carry it. And he would be strained. Trying to get it up out of the water wouldn't be easy. They would need rope or something to pull it up. He's like, there's no way I could swim up carrying this thing. But whatever's in here is pretty heavy. Now, they can't open the chest of holding underwater. It's just going to fill up with water. And they got a lot of food and supplies and stuff in there... ...that'd be destroyed by a bunch of ocean water pouring in there. So opening up the chest of holding wouldn't help. The flying carpet does not work underwater. It has to be in the air. So they can't pull the flying carpet out... ...even if they did have it out... ...and try to fly up out of the water... ...because it's technically not flying. It's swimming, and it's not a carpet of swimming. I say this because these are the questions they ask me. Can we open the chest of holding and putting it in there? No. First of all, it's too big to fit in there. Number two... All the things I just said. So if they want to take this chest... they got to find a way to do it. There's another smaller chest. This one. Much more carryable. And they see what probably were... Several stacks of very good quality... Elven uh, weapons. Swords and daggers and things. Uh, But most of those... Even as good a quality as they are... Are no longer usable. They're just rusted out completely... um, The chests, like I said, are in pretty good shape, but they're rusted. They'll probably have to break it to get it open if they they can get it up on the boat. Um, But there's a big one and a small one. The small one is not that heavy. Um, And looking at it, it appears to be very waterproof. It's actually buoyant. They take it out, and it actually will float a little bit. It'll slowly sink down, but it's relatively buoyant, which makes them say, okay, this has probably got air still in it. It's watertight, or airtight, I mean. So that wouldn't be super easy to get out of there. Even Dandy could carry that thing. But they don't find anything. That could be the captain's locket. Is there's a chance that the locket's in one of those two things? Maybe, but they don't want to take that gamble. Because their thought is... The captain's probably wearing captain's locket. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a good, safe assumption. So they continue looking throughout the ship. As they... Are getting near the very back of the ship. They find... The first corpse... That they found on this entire ship. Clearly it's elven in nature. There's no flesh on it at this point. It's mostly bones and some very tiny scraps... Of cloth around it. How it survived while the other ones... Have not. Hard to tell. There's little fish swimming around in here. So it's not like the fish couldn't get to it. They probably ate all the meats off. Patches... Hold on a minute. I may have to go and stop a cat from eating the other cat's food. Patches, stop. Stop. You. Thank you. Sorry. My wife just gave them treats. Patches ate all hers. And now she's trying to steal Buffy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so they uh, find this corpse. And sure enough, looking at it, it definitely has a chain... Some type of necklace on. Looks like a locket. The locket is in the shape of a leaf. Very intricate and in perfect condition. There's absolutely no smudge stain. It's literally shining with a bright silver. And they're like, okay. Well, this has all the uh, marks of a trap. we've ever seen one. So Dandy searches for traps. She does not find any. They search for secret doors. There was no reason to, but they did every room they ever go in. (laughs) Every room they ever go in, they search for secret doors. They did not find any. They're upset that I didn't put any in there, as they're always upset when there's a room that doesn't have secret doors. (laughs) And they uh, determine they're going to try to take the necklace. They decide to have Dandy try because you know, she's the most dexterous. If she can get it off of this thing or unclasp it in a way that he wouldn't feel, because you think about it, a good pickpocket can sometimes take off a necklace and take it without you even knowing, right? So that's the kind of skill that they're hoping Dandy has at this point. And she does. She very easily takes the necklace off and unclasps it without ever touching the skeleton at all. And she's like, and she gets it, she turns, and she's like... Hold up with like, a hey, look, I did it, and everybody else is like shink, pulling up the weapon. She's like, But I got oh, and standing behind her is the large, relatively large shape of the elven captain. He's now in glowing, the corpse is still down there, but he's in the same type of spirit shape that they were in, the other ones were, but he doesn't attack them. He just stands there and he looks kind of sad. And they've got the weapons and they're there. And then Dandy's looking at him and she holds up the necklace and he just kind of nods. And she holds it out to him and he shakes his head no. And he points down. Like I said, there were some cloth and Dandy's like reaches down and digs through it. And finds what appears to be almost like a, 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 a scroll tube, but extra thick. like A thick scroll tube. And she picks it up, and he has like a sad smile on his face, and he just nods his head. And Danny kind of puts it to her heart, like, I take these kind of thing, and he just nods his head. She says that, she goes, I take these, and he nods. And then again, he just starts to fade away. And any of the other ones that are around them, that they can see that were walking around the ship, all start to fade away at the same time. Whatever it was that they are here guarding, they no longer need to guard it. It was then that Darsh took ten points of damage. The explosion in the side of the ship... ...and the huge, thick tentacle that comes bursting through... ...struck Darsh like a warhammer to the side of the head... ...tossing him through the water. He hits the other side of the boat. The tentacle flashes sideways... ...and everybody else manages to duck most of the ways... Pepple people took a little bit of damage, but Darsh took the brunt of it. More smashing, and they can see other tentacles start to come in through holes that were either there or already created. And through a small porthole on the side, they can see a very large eye. And that's where I would normally say, roll for initiative. (laughs) Which, you know, is always fun. There are a couple of rounds into the battle before they can truly see what it is they're fighting. They realize they need to get out of the ship. The thing is cracking it and crushing it, trying to get at them. And the ship caving in might cause just as much damage as that. So they all start swimming to try to get out of different holes. The only downside to that is they are forced to split up a little bit. As always, Mercy goes nowhere without grabbing Artemis' arm and pulling her along. Mercy is with Artemis. Darsh goes jumping out one way himself. And Rokar and Dandy end up going out another side. They get outside to see that what they're facing is a huge octopus. And you're probably wondering, is it a regular octopus? Of course it's a regular octopus. It's just a giant octopus. That's been dead for about a thousand years. So the giant undead octopus... That sunk this ship... And somehow was cursed... Along with its crew... Has been kind of hanging around the area... Around this ship the whole time. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But they're fighting a giant... Undead octopus. It's only one, so it's octopus... Not octopi. So they're now in combat. The thing only has six tentacles. Um... It has two stubs, or nubs, where clearly it had two before. They can only assume that the crew were successful in at least doing some damage to it. The body has several wasted away sections, and they can still see a large haft or chunk of the wooden ballista that shot it in the head still sticking out. So while the crew may have gone down with their ship, they took the beast with it. So, they're in combat. They all have some form of negatives while fighting underwater. The choker helps horrendously, but they're still not in their normal fighting capabilities. The squid does not have ink. Or not squid. The octopus does not have ink. It's dead. Internal functions are not working. So after several rounds, every fourth round, they get a free attack because it's trying to squirt them with ink. But it's dead. It is an animal. It has animal intelligence. So it's acting as if it was also normally alive. So it doesn't know that its ink isn't working. It's trying. They didn't quite figure out that's why that was until afterwards. But every so often, it would take a round where it wouldn't attack at all. And that's why. So they were fighting it that way. So, it still has six tentacles. And there are, what, five of them, right? Four of them in Rokar. They only brought Rokar as a sidekick, as extra help. You always got to have one NPC, right? I always have to have somebody there they think I'm going to kill. It's important to me. but Because <laughs> they always assume when I make them bring an NPC, it's so I can kill them. Sometimes they might be right. But Rokar is there. And he and Dandy are trying to fight on one side. And the the octopus is fighting in in every direction. Dars is dealing with two tentacles. Artemis and Mercy are dealing with a tentacle each. Rokar and Dandy are dealing with a tentacle each. And that's kind of the distribution of six tentacles. The thing also does have that big claw. If it rolls successfully above a certain number, it has a chance of grabbing someone. Uh, they can make uh, a potential check to get out of it. But if not, then in one round, it will pull it up to its beak, which is still there, and it will bite them. They have one round to do that to give for either they to free themselves or someone else to free them before they get a big chunk bitten out of them. Uh, three successful bites and they're eaten. I give them all this knowledge as the fight's going. Once the first one gets grabbed and gets pulled in to get bitten, I explain how that works. Killing is fun. Can be. Oh. Sorry. Popcorn. Puffcorn. So. The battle doesn't last super long. Battles normally don't when there's, you know, four really powerful PCs and an adequately powered NPC. Um, but I got to do quite a bit of damage to them. Uh, I remember they rolled horribly in this fight. Like, bad. Like, there were several ones that I can... I don't remember exactly what they rolled. I remember they rolled ones. Um, I want to say two or three times Dandy and Darsh kept dropping their weapons. Uh, and Darsh, he's got his bracelet, he can just pop another one out. He was just going through all of his weapons. So he kept dropping one, and popping one out doesn't count as an action. It's a magical thing with a the, with the word. So he can pop that out and still attack. It's Faster than trying to find his other weapon. So he's just going through all of his weapons and kept losing them. Rokar took a beating. He was the first one to get bit. It grabbed Rokar, pulled him in, and it took a big old chunk out of Rokar. Alright, Paul. Thanks for something by, sir. <laughs> I love Paul's cameo appearances. <laughs> but, um, yes. So, Rokar got a big chunk taken out of him. Dandy was knocked unconscious once. I want to say by mercy. She rolled the one and rolled hit ally and did enough damage to knock Dandy clean unconscious and Artemis had to heal her. But it was just a bumble of a fight. Uh, When they did hit, they did do pretty good damage. um, And the creature did pretty good damage back. Artemis was really on the ball that day. Artemis was the only one who I remember had pretty much all successful rolls. But she was healing, which is great, but she didn't do any damage, but she was doing a ton of healing and she did well. Uh, she kept them alive. But, uh, yeah, it was it was a cluster to watch them. And, you know, we, story-wise, we just kind of put it as, well, they're fighting underwater. It's the first time they've fought underwater. Well, the chokers are helping. They're not the same, and they're still learning how to use them. Uh, so it just took some getting used to. Um, but, uh, finally, it wraps around Darsh, or Darsh lets it wrap around him. So he can get close to the beak, and he tries to, and he starts stabbing around the beak, not in the beak. He wouldn't do anything; he'd just bite his sword. But he starts stabbing around the beak, and the thing starts letting him go. But he's hanging onto the tentacle, so it can't. He's just stabbing at it while they're all stabbing, and they finally end up wearing the thing down. It's undead, so as they start cutting off tentacles, the tentacles stop moving, but the body is unaffected. Um, they had to do more damage to the top. Dar stabbing around the beak helped a lot. Um, But then Mercy finally got up near the top of it and started hammering on that piece of uh, ballista, that big giant arrow that was sticking out of its head, started hitting it harder inside. And as she did, it was just doing more and more damage to the brain-like matter. You know, zombie-type kind of concept. She's doing more damage to the brain, and she just starts hammering it in until finally it jerks and falls over. Uh, And I described the ballista very early on, sticking out of the head. And they said, did it go all the way through? I said, no, it's about a foot, foot and a half deep. Maybe knee deep. Um, So it did damage, probably killed it, but not enough to keep the zombie dead. So Mercy finally picked up on that, started wailing on it and doing damage. Kind of thought Darsh would get there and just, but instead he wanted to stab it in the face. Which is also very, very cool. But they're very—they're successful, and they're finally able to beat the living snot out of this uh, thing, not without incidents. One of their higher, one of their, one of the fights they've taken the most damage in in quite a while at this point. Against a regular creature, that's not a boss fight. You know, like when they fought the Emperor of Orimon and the dragon and stuff—they took a beating there too. But they—they're uh, successful. So they have the locket. They have the compass. Neither one of them is inside of those chests. So they're like, okay, well, whatever in the chest is something else. We're going to take them because our bargain was we just had to give her the compass and the locket. Anything else we find, we get to keep. And so they took it with them. Sure enough, uh, Darsh stayed down at the bottom while everybody else swum up and waited for them to drop something heavy on a rope that he could tie to it. Cause he didn't want someone else to steal his treasure. Darsh is a very positive pirate. But he waited down there until it finally a rope came down. And he straps it on. They start lugging it up. And he kind of swims up along with it. Um, but they make it on back onto the ship. Where Artemis is doing some last minute healings. On the people who are still hurting a little bit she she if you're relatively healed Artemis doesn't like to waste a healing spell on you to top you off if you will because she doesn't know if there's another going to be another fight back to back she'd like to you know instead of healing you that extra two hit points she'll wait where she might be able to heal you eight but if it looks like everybody's done she'll top you off So when they get up there and they bust that big one open inside of it they find over 5000 miscellaneous coins gold, silver, even a few platinum in there mixed with 2,200 gold pieces worth of gems and jewelry. Um, As I said, the elven weapons and armor was no good. The small waterproof chest appears to require a lock. And much to her dismay, it is beyond Dandy's capabilities. Dandy is pretty much one of the best that comes when it comes to unlocking things. And she can't get it. The keyhole is oddly shaped and matches nothing like anything they've ever seen. It's a very oddly shaped keyhole, and Dandy for the life of her can't get it open. Darsh tries breaking it open, but even though he's using incredibly like large, blunt, he grabs a huge hammer and starts bashing on it, doesn't even dent it. Oh, no, the rolls were good. She just failed. And Dandy could say she's never seen a lock like this. She's like, literally, I have no idea how this mechanism works. I'm in here blindly trying to find it, but it doesn't make sense. It's too difficult. And it's not, and it's not difficult because it's well-made. It's difficult because it's a locking mechanism. She's never seen anything the likes of it. She just can't figure out how it's supposed to work. If she knew how it worked, she could pick it very easily. No, I just told her straight out she couldn't do it. There are some things you just can't do. Um... But, to be honest with you, uh, thief skills in 2nd edition, the way 2nd edition worked, is you get... There are, there are thief skills. Open locks, find your move tracks, pick pockets, climb walls, move silently, hide in shadows. It's a bunch of, of, of skills. And your race, and your class, and your dexterity will give you points in that. And each point is a percentage. So, if you have a 30% in lock picking, means you roll... 100-sided, and you have to get a percentage. You know, you have to get that percent. Uh, so you have 30% or lower. If they roll it, they can open it. And as rogues level up, they get more points that they get to spend into which abilities they want. Um, with the max, you can't put more than like, you get 30 points per level, but you can't more put more than 15 in one specific thing. So they start leveling those skills up. By this point, most of Dandy's skills are at 95%, which is the highest you can get. Because there's always a chance for failure. Um, but yeah, and this yeah, like yeah, like yeah. Dandy decided to pick up a thousand pound boulder. She's not gonna do it. I don't care if she rolls a 20 or not, she's not picking up a thousand pound boulder. There's some things outside the realm of possibility. Her picking this lock is one of those. And the thing doesn't break either. So Darsh just kind of locks it in, you know, one of their, their own chests. And the rest of the coins. They do put it in the chest of holding. They put it in the chest of holding. They, they put all the coins in the chest of holding because they had to break the other chest to get it open. So they just basically, Darsh picks up and pours it in. There's so many times at the end of an adventure they're climbing down the ladder on a pile of coins and having to bag them all up again. <laughs> Cause they just don't have time to... you know, They're in a dragon's treasure. They throw the lid open and just throw everything in they can, close the door and leave. They're not getting bags. They're just tossing coins in through the ceiling of this room. Uh, but they do that with these coins and gems as well. shuck the rest of the, the broken uh, chest overboard, and they head on back to speak to Kadira. Nine days. It took them to get there. Nine more days to get back. It took several weeks to get to her the first time. You think about this? It's been a several months, a couple of months at this point since the Darstopian games. It's been well over a month since they were even on Darstopia. Darsh is starting to feel a bit antsy. Is he going to return home to an island that's been destroyed or conquered? What about the man in the hat? What if they reach out to Serenity and find out bad things have happened there? The longer they're gone, the more and more paranoid they get. And this is the players, even more so than the characters. Uh, I, I Putting the man in the hat back in rotation, reintroducing him for the only second time ever... Uh, was enough to freak them both out, and while Artemis has always been the one, young lady player, always been the one scared of the man in the hat, because she's always known he was there to kill her kid. He has no, she has no doubt that's why he's there. That was the complete feeling she got looking at him that one day in her bedroom. The beginning of this one, it wasn't Artemis that felt the fear; it was Dandy. Which now is making the young lady who plays Dandy saying, what if there's more to it? Why is he mad at me? And is he mad at me or is he mad at my kid? What if he... What if he's here to kill all the kids? Now they all got freaked out. Because now they're worried about all their kids being in trouble. And that's why Dar sent his wife and kids through as well. Serenity being so far away, safest place he could think of. Now, when he sent them away, he didn't do it specifically for Manhattan. He hadn't seen them yet. But he was worried about threats to his children. But once they were gone, he's like, Hell yeah, you're staying over there. Man in the hat. How do you even get in here? No one should have been able to get in there. There are only a couple keys that can open it. Like like the box I just found, Dandy can't pick it. Dandy couldn't pick Darsh's lock either. It's too expertly done, and it's magical. He had it enchanted. You can't always pick an, un- an enchanted lock. There's n- and the enchantment was not broken either. That's another thing I forgot to mention. They checked that. They had their wi- a wizard check it, more check it, and the enchantment that's on the lock is still there. He didn't break the enchantment, and he didn't pick the lock. And he didn't have any of the keys. They have no idea how he got in there. So if he could do that, where else could he get? You know what I mean? Now Artemis and Mercy are worried about the secret rooms they have in their temple and in their castle what is this di- dude's abilities what's his beef and why is it at them and Dandy's a kender and that's not supposed to happen and that's the most important thing to them at this point that's the, first, that's the biggest clue that is freaking out both of the young ladies playing these characters because they know a kender can't feel fear when Siric the giant black dragon flew overhead and everybody else about wet themselves Dandy felt nothing She's worried about her friends. There's concern. But she wasn't afraid. Which for the first time in her life. She felt fear. When she saw the man in the hat. So. And I digress. They make their way back to Kadira. Freaking out. About what they're going to find. When they finally get home. But knowing they can't go home. They don't know what they're going to do. They return to Kadira without incident. No more problems on the way back either. They got there fine, they get home fine. They make their way back in again, Mark leading them in expertly, and she is overwhelmingly pleased that they have returned with the locket and the compass. They hand them over without even a word. Like, These are yours. Because at that moment, they're like, we have to fulfill our bargain. Here you go. And as soon as they hand it to her, they literally feel like their load is lessened. They feel <sighs> relief. They have successfully fulfilled their side of the bargain, so that kind of pressure, and little I described it a bit more in detail to them, that pressure and uncomfortableness of something watching or feeling, of course, and of a great time to say this, Dandy didn't feel any of that. But the other ones felt that kind of pressure of, concern of, we've got to get this done. It's like antsiness. Dandy was, of course, a kender, so she's immune to fear. Um, but Kadira takes that, and she's in Im- there immediately feel better. Dandy feels the same. She then proceeds to fulfill her side of the bargain and explain that what they're looking for is a and I apologize for being cliche, a magical trit- trident called Triton's Fury. Because I've never had a magical trident, and this is a water-based thing, and I didn't care. I was having a magical trident. I'd always wanted to have one. So there's a magical trident named Triton's Fury. And it is located far to the southeast. This is good news and bad news. Excellent. There's a magical artifact that they can use, and it's a very far way, the opposite direction of Darstopia. Far to the southeast. And if it is far to the southeast... They do not have the supplies... To get there. She tells them that... Not only is this trident there... But it sits... Inside the treasure hoard... Of Moranos... The dragon turtle. (laughs) So... The sea dragon turtle... Moranos is the person who has Triton's Fury. Exactly. People are like, wasn't that cliche? And I'm like, yes, it was. And I loved every second of it. And that, my friends, was the first time they were going to have to deal with a dragon turtle. So, she tells them she doesn't know how they can get it. ...doesn't know what the cost may be... ...if they're going to have to fight him... ...can't tell you that... ...doesn't know... ...has no clue in the world... ...wasn't part of the bargain... ...she told them who has it... ...and can give them exact nautical directions... ...to where it is located... ...Dragon Turtle for the wind. ...that is correct... ...I tease Dragon Turtles all the time... ...and I was so excited knowing that eventually down the road... ...they would in fact deal with one... ...she gives them directions... Even better... She does take her map back, by the way. They were very good in copying that. And she gives them another one... Which isn't quite as detailed. uh, And doesn't look as old. She said she can tell you... How to get to the dragon's territory. But once they get there... They're on their own. She has nothing else. Not a single piece of information... She can help them with at that point. I mean, up until this point... I mean, legit... She straight up helped them. Yeah, they had to go fight get chewed on a little bit by an de- undead octopus but she kept her word they, she's legitimately helped them and the things that they turned over to her, whatever they are they didn't seem to be world ending You know, they didn't give her the two things that's going to make her a god of some kind I mean they hope anyways, maybe one day we'll find out but you know they're like okay that, that was actually successful we dealt with a sea witch and we came out of that pretty good I'm not sure how we're going to handle a dragon turtle. (laughs) Today was D&D day. No, today wasn't dragon turtle today. Today was day of rolling ones for Jim. He rolled two ones and a 20. It was very good. So let's see. Um, Yes. So they have this, right? They have this information. They have the addiction of where they're going to go. I did make dragon turtle jokes today, though. I will say that. Uh, I love Dragon Turtle. Ever since I'm making Dragon Turtle notes, I knew that eventually this part of the story would come up, and I loved it. Dragon Turtle. Oh, hey! Something just popped up on my screen, but I don't think the notification popped up because I've made some changes lately. But Rat, thank you very, very much for the $20 suit. There's just a delay. (laughs) Rat, thank you so very much for your donation. I very much appreciate that. I'm having a blast this stream. I'm just trying to kill characters. I appreciate your support. Thank you so much for coming by. Love that. He did fall off a wall. It was very funny. (laughs) I don't know why this one day I'm going to log on and see. He's changed his name to Dragon Turtle Master 326. (laughs) All right. So they have some conversations. They're like, what are we going to do? We have the directions we're going to go. We don't have the supplies to get there. I'm not even sure at this point we have the supplies to get back to Darstopia, Because you think about it. Nine days to get the Compass and back each way. That's 18 extra days worth of supplies they've used. That would have been their supplies to get back home. Right? So they're going to need supplies. It is again, Morik with information that is helpful. um, Saying that that not too far to the northeast, once they get back to the shore, there's a port city of river, river Blossom. The port city of River Blossom is maybe six days away, five or six days away. It'll add some time to their journey, but it's a big enough city that it should be able to meet almost all their supply needs. Now, Darsh has never been to River Blossom, but Darsh knows where it is. It's still on the coast. It's past the Dwarven area. It's so far away that at this point, bringing ships there and back just didn't seem profitable enough. So while he's aware of it, none of his ships have ever been to River Blossom. But he's heard that it's a welcoming port. There shouldn't be any problems. He spoke with people from there. So he's like, okay, yeah, that'll work. We'll go there. It's going to add some time to our trip. But I'm not heading into a Dragon Turtles area, not knowing exactly where we're going. And then my crew run out of food and water. I can't take that chance. So they decide to go to River Blossom. River Blossom... Oh! My goodness. I forgot. I forgot one thing. They, so they head to River Blossom. It's on the way to River Blossom... ...that Darshan and Dandy finally get open... ...that scroll tube... ...that the captain... ...wanted them to have. Of the ghost captain. And from it... ...they learn that there's multiple papers in there. It's almost like a journal... A thin journal, but kept in a tube instead of a book form. Makes sense. It's in a waterproof tube. During the voyage, it's, it, it, it states only that they were returning home from a long war. That after decades of battle, finally there was a chance for them to have peace. Finally, it was a chance for them to see their families they've not seen in decades. You know, for elves, that's not that long, really. But you know what I mean. Finally, they were returning home... And the evil they'd been fighting had finally been vanquished. And that they, some of the last few survivors, would finally get to see peace at home. And then the octopus killed them all so that part's not in there they had to figure that part out clearly he didn't write that while they were sinking but everything they read was up until that point and it was some logs I, I couldn't find the actual papers but it was this date so and so and it didn't say who they were fighting or anything along that nature but it was a, a re- there were handouts that I gave the players so I didn't have a copy of them I'm not sure where they were I, I had them rolled up and they, they got to have them in scroll tubes kind of thing hello colonel low and pickled fish you're, you're on the ocean you're never low on pickled fish you guys got to make sure you got enough pickling juice. Uh, but it was a very sad story. that Finally, after surviving all these wars, they never got to make it home. So there was that. Uh, yes, okay. So they make it. They head to River Blossom. Now, River Blossom, what Darsh knows of it, used to be, or uh, was once a booming port town on a large river and was used as a common trade route as people moving up and down the river. After the merge, the town found itself on the corner of that large river and the Central Sea, which is the sea that all the other Paxwall and them are on. So now, while it was was a big port, it's drastically boomed, because several new lands and such up the river... Some of them were ocean places that now don't have an ocean. A lot of people are using that river to get down to the ocean to travel both east and west and deal with new lands and kingdoms. They found themselves basically at the middle of an intersection. And that's great for trade, for port, for everything. And since the merge, the city's almost three times as big as it was. It was a very large town, small city. It is now a large town. And a welcoming port. It's always looking for business kind of thing. You know, it's, it's known to be a friendly port. Uh, Central Hub for Trading. Uh, several other nearby landlocked communities now use it as a place to move their log, uh, livestock and crops as well. So it's just a booming town. They make it there without any incidents. They land. Darsh pays the docking fee because there's always a docking fee. Oh, thanks for any people away last night. You're very welcome, sir. Always a pleasure. always a pleasure oddly enough today on the stream i sent everybody to darkosto and chatted with him for a second which was kind of (laughs) cool just just a little bit i don't think he recognized me but it was cool (laughs) to get to chat with a guy but somebody else did recognize me in his chat and thanks for the guides and then came and followed my channel so that was kind of cool um they make it there they land. Uh, do you know what the, the locket and the compass they do or was it just fine or? Oh no, I know exactly what they do. Yeah. They never found out. You guys might one day. I love planting seeds and we'll see what grows with them when, when the harvest comes. Now, they land on the dock. Well, they're not on the dock. That would crash it. They pull up next to the dock and tie off. The Chimera is easily the largest ship in port. Much so that when it was first coming up, people got nervous. Because the Chimera, while a very successful merchant ship, is built for battle. The Chimera is Darsh's exploration ship, and it's the ship that he whoops booty with. And I say that in all seriousness. He's a, he has a very big, booming merchant business... And some of those merchant ships may... Pirates. I mean, there's pirates out there. There's competitors. Knowing that the Chimera might roll up on you if you give any of his ships crap is honestly a thing that helps him maintain his position. The Chimera has never lost a battle. Hasn't even come close. Not going to say it won't eventually. But at this point, it is the strongest ship in the Central Sea that they're aware of. And so... Having that, you know, it's like walking around carrying a big sword, right? That's his big sword. People don't mess with him because he's got that big sword. And his islands, people are getting, and not only that, he has allies with all the southern kingdoms. So, you know, you don't make fun, you don't pick on a guy who has a big sword and a whole bunch of big friends. And that's how Darsh has maintained the peace in his waters, is through the Chimera. So when it pulls up on a port that doesn't know him, this is the kind of ship you expect to pull up and try to take over your city. So there's some nervousness till he comes down and says, how much do I owe you to park here? And they're like, oh, well, um, this much. <laughs> you know? They're like, okay, cool. Uh, man, why you gotta be so mysterious? The best literary gardener. I try. I try. And I it's it doesn't always pull off. And sometimes... I may never make anything out of something. But I think that one of the best things a storyteller can do is pull off a really cool ending to a story you didn't even know existed. You're doing a story, I casually means, mention something that's, oh, that's kind of cool, and you think nothing of it. But in the background, that story is still playing on. And down the road, You run into that story and you get to see the whole path it took to get to where you are now and how, once again, it's come to affect you. And more importantly, how your interference originally affected its story. Um, I think that's awesome when something pops up and you're like, I didn't even know that was important. I did not even know that was important and now it's the most important thing in the world. My players learn to watch for stuff like that. The man in the hat being a more obvious one, but obviously. Artemis is scared the hell out of that and out of that stupid sword that she pulled out of the mystery room with three boxes that something already took one out of. That's a story that's out there running somewhere. She knows that. Eventually that's going to come back to haunt her, but in a good way or bad way, she doesn't know. I love those little snippets of story. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's older episodes. You should go back and check those out. they arrive and Darsh immediately sends Doram and Rokar about business of restocking Darsh finds an inn Uh, mostly because he wants a drink but partially an inn is a great place to get information he looks for a popular one not the seediest one but maybe not the fanciest one either but he finds an inn and him and Mercy go bumbling in there and uh, see what's going on After the dwarf section, that's correct. When they were in the uh, helping take back the haunt, the the section that was at the plague, and they were in the treasure room picking out their chest of stuff, and she found that door with the man in it, who said, "Choose a box, choose a door, a bar slash inn." That is correct. We had we had a running gag this morning that I'm going to start a bar and call it slash inn. Welcome to my bar slash inn. Oh, can we rent a room? No, it's just a bar. I thought you said it was a bar slash inn. Yes, that's my place. Can we get a room? No, we're just a bar. <laughs> I just like silly word puns like that. I like to mess with the characters. I'm like, you find an inn, we go in. Do you go in the inn or do you go in the out? Do you go out the inn or in the end You know, I just like showing silly stuff like that. Another funny one I like to do is, I'm like, you're you're in a cave and you see a chest. We grab it. She slaps you. But you do see a trunk full of treasure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just silly comments like that. So they're hanging out in the inn. Slash bar, having a bev, chatting with some of the folks, learning a little bit about the town. When the mayor of town, of the town, River Blossom, comes in. He is a big dude. Big dude. And I don't mean muscular. He's a fat dude. He is a chunky monkey. And he comes sliding in there. But he's very good natured. You tell people, like, hey, cheering us up. He seems to be quite popular. And he's clearly... It doesn't take him long to find his way to Darsh, who he's come to see. Once he heard that the Chimera had pulled into port, and who had signed office as, as head of that ship, Darsh, he recognizes that name. Because while he may have never been to Darshtopia, same situation, a little outside of the waters they deal in, he still has heard of it. Other ships have come through here... That have been there and talk about how prosperous it's being. Prosperous it's being. Is he a dwarf? Nope. Human. Just a very big one. So they get to chatting a little bit, and he kind of hitting up Darsh about talking about potential, you know, ports of trade. He's like, you know, I know you trade and such, and well, we're a little bit further than you normally go. Um, I'm told you have access to some quality goods that would sell very well upriver. And potentially, I may have some goods from upriver that might sell very well in your area. So he's telling Darsh, hey, some of those goods you have, if you could just bring them over here and sell them to me at a good enough price, I could make profit selling them upriver, and vice versa. Those people bring it here, I'll sell it to you. So, Darsh, while not expecting that at this point of the adventure, is always looking for a good deal. So he starts chatting up the mayor, who I should probably tell you his name, Brandon Firesmith, uh, who, for the record, I don't remember why I got that name... ...but Brandon Firesmith... ...and he's chatting with him... he finds out that Brandon's father... ...was the original mayor of the town... ...but was away during the merge... ...and so he took over... when the, he, of course didn't come through in the merge... ...so he ended up... ...even at six... ...he's, he's only like in his early to mid-twenties... ...but uh, he was always just a kind of a... ...fat kid who didn't really care too much... ...well suddenly... ...he's gone... ...he has to take care of his... ...family... ...his father's gone... ...he had to take over the business... ...and get a crash course... And surprisingly, found out he was really good at it. Um, and so much so, and so positive, that business boomed. Uh, he People in the town really liked him, and when it came opportunity, he went for mayor and won. Um, and so he's been running it pretty much since the year after the merge. He's very, but Darsh already knows this stuff. He's learned, he knew a bit about the town before he got here. But he knows that he's very well-liked and trusted, and Darsh is pleased with that. So, they're chilling there. The inn that they're hanging out at is one called the Elven Sea Shanty. Owned by Morales Quickfeather, Merilis Quickfeather, a female elven bard who uh, decided to sit down. Uh, it's always nice to find some elves. It's very popular. Uh, the characters decide to spend a couple days there instead of on ship. It's always good to you know, slide a little coin into some local pockets. Um, barmaids, a human young woman named Chella, and Diana, who is a half elf. Um, it's there that the mayor found them, talking about opening trades, so on and so forth. So, like in many of my adventures, I have a list of locations in this town. Some of these locations have information that can be learned if they go there. Firemoons, brother, uncle, grandchild, cousin, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> That's funny, though. Uh, But so I have different locations. They ask me, what places are there in this town? Well, there's the inn, there's a temple, there's a Bertram's All Goods, uh, Kaj's Trading Post, and there is a marketplace. Uh, Those are the primary businesses they could visit. And Sometimes some of the information they could be learned at multiple of them. Sometimes only a piece of information could be learned at one of those places. Whether they learn it or not is whether they go there and whether they're successful in retrieving the information. But I have it down here, which ones they retrieved. So while they were here, pieces of information that they got. Everybody here knows about the dragon turtle. Yeah, there's a dragon turtle far to the southeast and nobody goes in there. Every ship they're aware of that has entered his waters... ...he has sunk. He does not like visitors. So he's very rarely seen... ...only a few times... ...and very much avoids surface contact. Very rarely comes surface. But he's a big one. He's not as big as the giant sea turtle... ...that... uh, ...Kinira was living on. But it's a big dragon turtle. Exactly, whether they asked the right question... Uh, let's see. Uh, they also find that the, the river here... ...that Thronachronov... ...goes overwhelmingly far to the north. Uh, so much so that he's like... you know, ...I don't even know what's at the very north of that. Most people haven't traveled that far... ...but occasionally people will come down... ...from higher and higher places. I say higher. It's more northern. Not higher. It's during this time... ...that Dandy catches glimpse... Of a very large one-eyed sailor. You know, because... Another cliche. <laughs> he's scarred. big cut down there. And he doesn't have a patch on. It's just one eye. And the, the, even the holes kind of caved in. With a big old scar over his eye. And uh, Dandy kind of gets the feeling... He's paying a little bit more attention to them... Than the average person. That doesn't necessarily make him good or evil. But Dandy kind of picks up on that... Nobody else does. Dandy's very good at surveying the room. She also had to roll the dice, and she successfully rolled. Um, So while Dandy and Darsh are chilling there, Mercy and Artemis decide to hit the temple. Because, again, great place to get information, Artemis and temples. Again, I can't say it enough, their golden ticket. So when they head to the temple, the temple itself is... uh, Relatively small. It's nowhere near the size of, of Artemis' temple. But, you know, again, as the city's been booming in marketplace and so on and so on in business, you know, the temple just hasn't really grown to match it. So it's a relatively small one. Um, there are three clerics that live there. Full-time. You know, clerics are always coming in and out. There's uh, Sister Dora, who is a cleric of knowledge. Brother Phelan, who is a cleric of night. And Sister Dismona, who is a cleric of the sea god. That technically makes her an evil cleric. I want to point that out. So this is the second sea cleric they've seen in this area. Um, walking into the place and meeting them, instantaneously, Artemis outranks all of them. Uh, none of them are even close to her in power or level. And when I say power level, I don't quite mean spellcasting and experience points, but power and level within the church system. Uh, just the markings on her robe which denote her rank as a high as a high priestess. Uh, that's not someone you just normally find walking around. High priests and priestesses don't commonly leave their temple. So when Artemis walks in there, even the evil one's like, Christ, we're honored by your visit. Just because you're a good and evil cleric doesn't mean you can't get along. Especially on this, which is neutral ground. Holy ground, but obviously. Holy to all. Because the three clerics I named, one was good, one was neutral, and one was evil. Uh, but you're very commonly going to find uh, clerics of the sea god near bodies of water. That just makes sense, right? You're not going to find a cleric of, that, uh, of, of the sea god in a desert. Probably. Exception to every rule, though. So, of so, uh, the information I gave earlier... Some of that they got there, some of it they got at the inn, and a couple places they went to. I just kind of gave you along the bullet points of which piece of information they did get. Um, they learned it's going to take about 48 hours. Uh, was the good, neutral, evil intentional? Yes. Yes, it's me showing that this, this is a temple that accepts everyone. Artemis' temple, when evil clerics come on, on you could say uninvited. Um, an evil cleric who, you know, comes to the border and, and requests permission to, to come aboard, if you will, and Artemis grants that, will have no problem walking the lands unless they do something, you know, to try to harm someone there. But if someone, like, tries to sneak in, which they did try to do before, then the holiness will repel them. It will negatively affect their spell casting and things of that nature. But, you know, an evil cleric comes to live at Artemis' temple, hypothetically, um, evil or not, that's still her home. It gets attacked by Oramon. She may be defending the temple. Her spells would work just as well as Artemis's because she's defending the holiness of that land. She's not attacking it. So, again, how the gods see that. You know what I mean? Because if a, god, a cleric of evil walks onto holy land and is trying to do bad stuff, it's the good cleric or good god that's pushing down your ability and not giving you contact to your god. If you're defending it, the god's like, no, I don't let that go through. I got no problem with it. So, yeah. Most temples will allow alternate alignments on there under the right circumstances. So I said it's going to take 48 hours due to the amount of supplies they need. um, But they're able to get everything they need pretty quickly um, at a really good price. And that's one thing Dorum comes back and reports to Darsh. Hey, pricing here? Pretty good. Um, the fact that a lot of cities are bringing their goods through here actually helps the buyer. There's a bit of a surplus of goods coming through here. A lot of the same type of goods, um, which could very well explain why Brandon wants to sell to somewhere where they may not have that goods, where he can get a better price and bring goods in that he doesn't have. Um because there's a, a lar- they were able to get a lot of the grains and the meats and salted meats and a couple extra barrels of pickled fish, the important stuff, uh, at an exceptionally good price compared to what they would pay back home. So Dar- he, right off that, buying them regular price, they could make a profit. He starts buying in bulk and gets a deal, he could make a lot of profit. So Darsh, uh, the young lady playing Darsh, we start talking about how much it would cost to get another ship. That sole purpose was to go between here and there. Would it benefit him to buy or build another ship? How long would it take for him to remake his money? How much would he make in a year? Estimates, of course. These are questions Darsh and I had quite often. Very business-minded, Darsh, and the young lady playing Darsh. All right. So, it's the end of the first evening. Everybody's kind of chilling at the... uh, Mercy and Artemis have come back. They're all staying in the uh, very snazzy inn run by the uh, elven bard lady, who's amazing singing voice. Everybody enjoys that. And after the, she ends and Mercy and Artemis decide to head to Hay early, Darsh and Dandy decide they're going to make one back... One, Darsh is going to go back to the ship. Dandy decides to tag along. He's going to go back, just check with Dorham, see what else he's, what's going on, do one last check of the ship, make sure there's no problems before he goes to bed. So, Dandy, Darsh, and Dorum are kind of. Let's see, do they not have enough money at this point to see them through their entire lives? No. No, they do not. And you probably are wondering why. It is expensive to run an island, let alone four of them. Mercy has put so much money into the weapons, armor, and defenses to fight Oramon over the last four years that she's b- not even breaking even on taxes and such that's coming in. She's at the point now that the Oramon war is over is the first time she's actually seen a little bit of profitability because she has put so much money into training military, weapons, armor, building forts, building the land. She had to put a whole sewer system in the city. You can imagine all that. Artemis helps with some of that. Of course, she's building an orphanage at this point. She's building this and that. and She's been in charge of building the temples in all of the small towns. Artemis has paid for every temple that's popped up in any of the towns in Serenity. Because that's what you do when you have a piece of land that now you're claiming in someone else's city. Everybody loves that. We're going to have a temple here, and you're going to pay for it? That's awesome. So those type of things happen. They've thrown a lot of money out. You can imagine how much the Darstopian games cost. Right? I talked multiple times about how much um, security, extra security he had. He had an entire gladiatorial arena and racetrack for chariots built on one of the islands. I mean, one of the islands was converted into a carnival slash Olympics. And that all came out of his pockets. So, yeah, they're wealthy out the wazoo, but the amount of money that they put out also cost them a lot. Um, and Darsh is always taking one of his ships and going on adventures half the time. So that ship's out of business. Right now, the Chimera could be doing a lot of work for them, hauling goods and so on and so forth, but right now it's not. So they have a lot of money. The only one of them that's honestly just wealthy out still is Dandy, because Dandy has no output. In fact, she gives money away very often and helps chip into the others. Um, we don't talk a lot about the coin specifics. It's enough that you have enough to cover this. Do you want to do it? Yes. You have enough to cover this or this. Which one do you want to do? I'll do that one. And so they have to make decisions based on that. They're like, how long before I'll be able to do that other one? Six months, you'll have enough profit to do the other thing. Okay, well, we'll do this one for now. We'll do that one in six months. Um, Because they're building... Darsh had to build his own home, his own island, Serenity Keep, all that. So while they do have a lot of money... They all also want to leave something to their children. Especially in this type of time period. The more you can make, the more you can leave your children, the better off you're going to feel. I mean, we're like that. If I had the option to leave, I have a kid, I don't. But if I had a kid and I'm like, okay, I can leave him a thousand dollars or i die. Or I can leave him a million dollars. Or I can leave him a hundred million. I'm going to pick the hundred million. You know, probably. He'll be a turd. But, you know, (laughs) he'll grow up rich. But that kind of a thing. What's up, Midnight Gaming? What's up? Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things, that drive to leave those behind better off than you had when you started. And, you know, make your mark in the world. Uh, and they've definitely made their mark. So that night, hanging on the ship, Darsh and uh, Dandy and who else is there? Dandy Dorum was there, and Rokar. So there's just a few of them kind of chatting. Right? Just just sitting there chatting. When about that time, Gipper comes on deck to chat with them. Gipper, of course, we haven't talked about Gipper. We got there. Oh! (laughs) That's Yerbs' five-month anniversary as a member. Thank you, Yerbs. Appreciate having you. Though she might stab you in the back. Saying, That's true. you got to be careful. Give it to all of her other boyfriends. But... Um, Gipper comes out. And the whole reason for the quest. I haven't talked to him about him much. Gipper comes out to talk to him about so on. Just whatever. Naya is, is down under deck. She doesn't come out very much. Because, to be honest with you, the heat of the sun and stuff, with her not being in the water, is very uncomfortable for her. Every so often, she has to get in the water, and it's always a moment of nervousness. You know, something doesn't pop up and grab her. So... Uh, that kind of thing has to happen. That, where literally, they slow the ship down, go down in a rowboat so she can jump in the water, swim around for a little while, and then hop back in the boat and they pull her back in. Um, I talked about that. She can't be in the water more. She has to be in the water a certain period of time every two days, I think I said. Several things happen at once. Gipper comes out to talk to them. Dandy sees something at the same time Gipper does. And what they see sees them. Dandy just chatting, looking down at the dock, sees very uh, shady-looking character with a huge scar in one eye. At the same time, Dandy turns. Gipper's like, hey, just happen to look too and sees him. Does a double take, and the one-eyed man starts to run. Gipper starts stumbling over his words and points... And the only thing he can get out is... Shark. It's the only word they needed. Dandy and Darsh immediately take off after him. He's running down the docks. But Darsh and Dandy are faster. Dandy's faster, because even though he's a big guy... She's little, she's not weighed down. And Darsh has some really snazzy boots... And so he fires off his boots of charging and just zooms up on this dude. Now, it doesn't catch him right up to the guy, but it gets him pretty close. And hearing these big stomping foot, can you imagine with Darsh in his gear, sounds like running up a wooden dock. Like, just imagine that, right? How many sharks are there? Gipper doesn't know. He knows there's a bunch of them. Love for me and a good... Ah, night, Jonas. Have yourself a good one, sir. Hope you sleep well. Thank you for coming by. But Darsh gets close. You just imagine the sounds of Bigfoot Darsh come clomping behind you at a fast speed. The man turns around and draws out a weapon. He draws out a sword and the very typical classic pirate weapon of a wooden thing with a big hook on it. He's, he has a hand. He doesn't have a hook hand. I didn't take that cliche. But he has one of those wooden things with a big hook that kind of comes out. So he's got that in one hand, and he's got his sword in his other hand. The sword's in his left hand. And the way he's moving, Darsh immediately asks me, and can tell, the man is left-handed. My characters are good at asking questions like that. These these characters are pretty good. I've had characters in the past that did not. They ask that. Is he left-handed or right-handed? He sees me favoring his left. Okay, doesn't mean that's not a feint. It's usually not the case. So Darsh and this guy are in combat for a good round or so before Dandy gets there. And the guy's strong. Now, he's not Darsh's size, but he almost seems like he's Darsh's strength. He has His sword is, like I said, it's a, he's got a short sword. But the strength he's got behind his blows is surprising to Darsh. But then again, very often, lycanthropes have additional strength, speed and agility because of the animal they can turn into. Even when he's not a shark you kind of get certain perks of that, right? Regeneration all that kind of stuff. And that's a point of, of problem right there. Because the first few hits Darsh gets in within a couple rounds he can see those wounds already healing. And his blade, he's using a blade so it's cutting. It is able to cut the skin but it's like cutting something very thick. It's not going very deep. And this isn't even a boss. (laughs) But it's their first time fighting a were-shark. Now, you remember I mentioned earlier, were-shark's unaffected by silver. It has to be a magical weapon of a certain level in order to affect it. But silver, while it doesn't really do them damage, uh, some of those wounds will be slower to heal. So it may not actually take away hit points, but over time could become an issue if they got enough of them. They know this, so Dandy does not have her silver daggers out. Dandy grabs her dagger of fire, which is literally a flame dagger, and a dagger plus four, which at this point is the strongest dagger that she has. Um, And she starts, you know, she comes in and literally drops and slides down below Darsh and starts going at this guy's legs. I loved the idea of it. She goes, can I slide on the dock? I'm like, yeah, you can try. Cool, dexterity check. And she just slides and comes down between his legs and starts stabbing at his legs. The dude has to jump back, which gave Darsh a good chance to take an attack. At the same time, Darsh didn't know she was going to do that. Had to make a dexterity check to make sure he didn't step on her and fall. Uh, They were successful. They've not always been successful at some of the weird combo moves they've tried to put together. But Toss the Kender has always been pretty successful one way or another. So... Let's knock my drink over. These guys get into a fight. And... Darsh gets some good hits in. He does damage. But within a couple of rounds, he can see them... They're you not know, like, healed. Not like Wolverine from X-Men. Not that fast. But enough that you can see it physically healing in front of you. Um, the only one that doesn't seem to be doing that is Dandy's Fire Dagger. Um... Just by nature, him being a water creature, uh, the burning of the skin is causing it a little bit harder time to regenerate. Her stronger dagger, the plus four, does do good damage, but it doesn't slow down the regeneration. This was an important point for them, because they realized, okay, fire's good, but 99% of the time we're going to be fighting them underwater where fire's not an option. But if we find one on shore, that's cool, right? Fire, silver, these are things that always hurt lycanthropes. Acid as well will do the same thing. Dandy and Darsh are fighting this guy alone. Now, the docks are relatively thick, and you can imagine Dorm sent some reinforcements, right? Dorm's the captain of that ship, technically. I mean, Darsh is the admiral of his entire navy, if you will, but he goes, take your admiral, goes running off with with your Kender sidekick because the guy who you're trying to save from were sharks points at the guy and says, Shark? Dorm's like, what could this mean? Dorm's a very smart guy and immediately starts calling for help. So, only four or five rounds go through before they start to hear more footsteps come running up from the ship. So, it takes a couple of minutes for people to look. What's going on? Oh, they got to grab their weapons. They're not always running around with their swords on the. On not everybody does, especially when they're at dock. They grab their weapons and they come. Dorm in, in the lead, running after him with probably about eight or ten other guys at this point. The shark sees this, and knows that's too many. And so, he makes a very big lunge at Darsh. He takes a big hit because of it, but in order to not take the big damage himself, Darsh has to attempt to parry one of those attacks, that hook thing. So, Darsh gets a good stab with his sword, but Darsh has to block back to do that. He uses that opportunity to jump off the dock. And even before he hits the water, they can see his skin starting to go gray and to change shape. Darsh's boots aren't charged. He can't charge in like that. And he just took, you know, he just did a defensive move. So, jumping in the water, he's not going to be able to catch a shark. Dandy, on the other hand, is faster than both of them. And Dandy jumps off the dock. The wear shark. Hits the water, still partially changed. And within a moment, Dandy hits the water on top of him. It only takes a round for him to turn into a huge great white shark. But Dandy's two daggers have already pierced into his back. And she's holding on. And he goes under. Darsh freaks the hell out. Dandy in the water with a great shark, with the intelligence of a person, by herself, is never a situation Darsh wants to deal with. Darsh does jump in the water and try to go after them. Remember, he and Dandy are both still wearing those chokers. So she's not going to drown. He's not worried about that. But if the shark tosses her off, her ability to be agility in the water, not as good on land. So Darsh does his best to try to swim after them. Or no, he ran after them. Because he jumped on the water and ran. But his boots aren't charged, so they're making better speed. The shark is literally immediately going for for deeper water. Dandy's grasping onto the thing, and every so often, she makes a roll, and she pulls a dagger out and stabs again while holding on to the other one. And she's kind of alternating. And she's trying to pull her way up closer to the eyes. Because that's what she wants to stab. But he's moving too quickly in the force of the water. She's stabbing him repeatedly, but she's not getting closer to the eye. She just doesn't have the strength to pull herself up um, underwater. Darsh has boots of water, or has a a ring of water walking. So there's been several fights where he can walk on water. He'll jump on the water and then do his charge. That's when they fought the uh, shark squid from last one. He did that when they were fighting the sea dragon way back in the day. Uh, when they first were dealing with that, it's quite often where Darsh will jump off the boat onto the water and run. The problem is, is if he gets knocked over and falls in the water, he can't get back on top of the water. His hands don't have water walking. He can't pull himself up. He has to be on something dry and step onto it to be able to walk again. So a lot of times he'll do that and then do his boost. But if he trips, he goes underwater. He's not getting back up unless he can get on land first or a ladder or something. Uh, So he's running after him, and Darsh is fast, but the shark is going down, not just forward. It finally gets to a point where Dandy realizes that the thing is, she's starting to slide off. She realizes this because the rolls I'm giving her to hold on are getting harder. Now you have to roll a 12. Now you have to roll a 13. Now you have to roll a 14. She's going underwater, and every time she pulls that flaming dagger out, it's still on fire. The flame is wrapped around the blade. The water, it ignores that. It still stabs with it. It's still fire going into that thing's skin. And it's not happy about it. But it's not trying to buck her. It's just trying to go faster and faster to try to hope that it just pulls her off. She didn't have the thing around her neck, which it didn't know. She probably would have drowned by now. So it's confused. Why is this Kender still stabbing me? Why is it not lost water and floated up and I eaten it already? You can imagine his frustration. They know nothing about... He knows nothing about the choker. And he keeps hurting da- hurting him with those stupid daggers. But sure enough, eventually a roll fails and Dandy falls off. Dandy's just kind of floating there in the water. Right? She's got her daggers. And the shark's kind of circling a bit. Because he's like... Do I want to mess with this? Right? He's kind of deep. Like, you can see the top of the wall, you can see the surface, but he's like, okay, I really want to eat this thing. I want to eat it real bad because it stabbed me, and I want to eat it, and I want to punish it. And I want to chew on it really slowly. At the same time, to do that, I've got to get close to that dagger again, and that thing's quick, way quicker underwater, and it's somehow it's breathing. I don't know how. So, this is an a regular shark would have just attacked, but this thing's intelligent. It's a person in a shark's body, a big shark's body. So Dandy can see this. She can see that it's calculating, and she's like, okay, what can I do? Most of my magic items down here aren't going to do much. My two daggers, which for the life of me, I'm trying to hold on to and I don't drop. She was so worried she was going to roll a one and get dropped weapon. You drop a sword in the ocean, you're probably not going to find that again. A knife or whatever. So she's holding on to them for dear life, and she knows that fire dagger, it doesn't like. And so she's got that one out front, like, come on. She's, and she, she fights... Unless she's throwing them, she fights daggers down. She's like, come on. She's like, I'm ready for it. At this point, the shark... ...kind of stops and, like... "Hmm?" ...just stops from it and kind of turns... ...and then turning the opposite direction... ...makes a straight arrow for deeper water. And that's because the shark could hear and feel Darsh... ...running across the surface. Dandy doesn't have that ability. The choker doesn't help her in that regard. But sure enough, Darsh is running up on the water looking down at night trying to find something. And the only thing he can see is the small glow from her flaming dagger. And as soon as he sees that, he jumps and dives in. Because he can breathe underwater too. Now he wants to get deep. Sure enough, a moment later he swims down. Dandy's still there. And he's like, what's going on? And she says, I did this, this. He swam off. But I don't know if he actually swam off or not. Darsh is like, good call, okay. So they start making their way back to shore. Darsh swimming with her on the back of her shirt, pulling her while she's sitting there facing looking backwards in case the shark comes back. Because remember, they can talk underwater somewhat. She can be like, shark! And then he's like, okay, and he turns around too. But it's kind of the thing where they're back-to-back underwater at this point. But they make it to the shore without seeing the shark again. Dorum, of course, are there, and they pull... Darsh and Dandy out. Uh, Darsh took a few more hits than Dandy did. She's of course much agile. She didn't take any damage once she ran in the water. She did damage and the shark's definitely going to remember Dandy. Going back to the boat they get to speak with Gipper and and he's like, he goes, yeah, he goes, I've seen that shark. That's the shark that the head shark sent to, you know, every year to give the message of send us these things or we're going to destroy your city. He goes, I've seen him. I don't know. Any other... That's the only shark I've ever seen. Is the one, I just happened to be there when he came into the city one time. and I was there with my buddy Talon. He let me see. Well, now they've got an issue. There's no way they're going to track that shark. There, nobody has underwater tracking abilities. There's no footprints. So now they have to assume... The sharks know... The Gipper and the princess are here. Right? So now Darsh has a multitude of concerns. The shark could go back and tell the other shark... And all the sharks come looking for them. Why is the shark here? Is it looking for them or is it looking for us? Does it know we're trying to stop them? Does the shark... Which, to be honest, would have been my move... If it had been me... I'd go tell the elves. Hey, I saw your princess. And that that guy who said he didn't have them got him on his boat. Now I'm going to sit back and wait for the elven army to go get him and bring him back for me so I've got no problems. And Darsh realizes that's a possibility, too. So he tells Doran, we need to buck this up. Get as much on here as quickly as you can, but we're leaving tomorrow. So they end up not being able to take as much of the goods and supplies as they wanted. They're going to have to try to survive more on the water. They also have to be concerned, because Danny says, yeah, I saw a guy listening to us in the inn. Darsh was asking about the dragon turtle. So the sharks may know they're headed that way. Probably not why. They Unless they talked to the Oracle and did something. The sharks probably would have been better at going and getting the necklace and the compass, so probably wasn't that. You know, we're going to the dragon turtle. Maybe they think we're going to seek him out as an ally to fight your, your Oclodon, which the dragon turtle would lose. The, your octodon is bigger. So Darsh and, and the party, they're chatting about all this. So like These are what we have to worry about. And Darsh is like, we need to leave now. We don't know. It, I mean, he's got to swim a long way to get back. They know that. Even at shark speed I, and the injuries they've given him. I don't think he's going to get there and back with a bunch of sharks or elves today. But we need to get out of here as quickly as we can. Um, so Darsh doesn't sleep that night. He gets no rest. He stays up all night helping getting everything loaded. Dandy and Artemis and Mercy go back to the inn and spend a good night's rest as best they can. Um, and then, but Darsh works through the night getting the ship done. He's like, "I'll sleep when we're going. I got to get us off of here." And so he gets that going. So they get on as many supplies as they can, and the next day they take off. So their head. Sorry, I... just realized something. You know I said, I've told you in the past, that sometimes I like to give segments of my story funny names that only I see? Uh, That last section with the were-shark was called Were-shark. Oh, their-shark. Which is just a clip off of an old Young Frankenstein movie, which is hilarious. Uh, And this next section, where they go to find the dragon turtle, is called Turtle Soup. What's there? I'm just saying. So, turtle Soup. So, they know that with the description and the information that they got from the Oracle, see Sea Witch, if you will, it's going to take them a little over three weeks to get to the Dragon Turtle's waters, or the area that it claims as its own. Yeah, for real, Turtle. Turtle Soup. Where Shark? Oh, there Shark. That was before I met you, man. But I like to give myself little funny things like that. So... (laughs) Damn your eyes. Too late. That's my favorite movie. That's my favorite of his movies, I should say. Mel Brooks' movies. Uh, Young Frankenstein's my favorite. Followed by Robin Hood Men in Tights. So... It takes them a little over three weeks... ...to reach the Dragon Turtle's territory. Now, according to their charts... ...they stop... ...just outside of it... ...assuming that they're in the right area. It's hard to tell in the ocean. There's no lines, you know what I mean? But based on the navigation they have... ...they're just outside of the Dragon Turtle's area. Darsh does not want to take the Chimera in. If it's in fact the Dragon Turtle... ...has sunk every ship that's ever come through there... ...he would rather not lose his. So he decides instead that he's going to um, leave them... and they're going to jump in the water... and kind of make their way over that way. So... once again... they have to decide who's going to go. So Darsh, Dandy, Artemis, and Mercy... are going to go. They're taking Morik, Right? They want their sea mage down there... because you never know. Right? Um, And they take... Rokar. And who's the other one? They don't take Nathalion. Bows and arrows don't do you very good underwater. Nathalion's not as handy in that area. Uh, they don't take Gipper, and they don't take Nyla. They don't want to chance of them in the water in case the sharks do catch up. I think that was everybody. Yes, that was everybody. So, they decide we're to take a small party. Worst case scenario, if the turtle attacks us, you guys can go home. There's always that backup plan. If we get destroyed, go home. Turn over Gipper and the girl. As much as we don't want to do that, you're never going to be able to protect them yourself. We can't let thousands die. And they don't want that option, but Darsh has to look... Darsh and Mercy, they have to look big picture now. They can't do the, oh, I'm too honorable to do that. They're like, tens of thousands of people could die, and we can't do that. So, you know, Poo. So they arrive and they decide they're going to jump into the water and try to find the turtle or its lair. Um, they're not here to steal it. And I want to stress that. They, if it's in his treasure hoard, their goal is not to come in and steal it, because dragon turtles, by and by, are not always evil. There's a couple different colors of them too. On Merge Worlds, anyways. So they jump in the water, and those six go: Rokar... Mork, and our four heroes. Um, so they sink down. It takes almost an hour to hit the bottom of the ocean here. I want to say they're not just sinking like a rock. It they it's like feather fall. They're they're falling down. You know they could probably swim further, but you know why? <laughs> so they see tons of fish, right? But nothing large. They were not attacked at all on the way over here, and. The assumption is because the dragon turtle probably wouldn't tolerate any other big creatures in its area. You know what I mean? If that shark squid popped up around here, dragon turtle would make a small meal out of that. So there's probably not a lot of other big predators in his water. He wouldn't tolerate that. So they're like, okay, so we don't have to worry about big predators. Doesn't mean a little shark or something, you know. It's Merge Worlds. For all we know, there's ocean piranha. Like, we've got to be careful. Who knows what our dungeon master has concocted to throw at us? Well, I know. <laughs> so they make their way down to the bottom. Now, when they get to the bottom of this one, uh, it's very rocky, much so. It's like so. they sometimes almost like looks like they're climbing hills. Again, they get to do that gravity jump on the moon stuff. So it's not all like hard climbing, uh, but it is very slow going. Um, and they travel for almost half a day. Before they really come across anything. Uh, they reach the bottom. And as they're traveling along. Which is very rocky and corally. It says here in my notes. They're still heading southeast. How big is the dragon turtle supposed to be? Ooh, What a great question. So much like other dragons. They can average in size. It's going to depend, depend on its age. So if it's a small one. It's going to be about the size of Darsha's ship. Maybe a little smaller. Darsha's ship, the biggest one on the ocean right now. If it's full-sized, it will be one and a half times to two times as big as the Chimera. They're very, very large. Um, so, they, it just depends on their age. Just like other dragons, they get bigger and stronger the older they get. Unlike most people who get weaker when they get old, not so much. So, they travel for a while. I believe I had a small fight with something in there. I think it might have been a sea worm. A sea worm is relatively large, but it mostly digs under the bottom of the ocean. Um, I didn't create the sea worm. That's a creature that already exists. Uh, According to my note, yeah, here it is. Volume 4, page 66 of the Monster Manual Appendix. For my own reference, I like to write that down. So if I fight a sea worm, it's not really a threat to the dragon turtle, because it's mostly burrows underground and pops up, but it's, it's like 12-14 feet long. It could eat one of them. So there was a small fight with that, but that was just more of an inconvenience, so it wasn't boring. Um, they fight that and they destroy that. So, after they've been traveling for half a day, they finally come to an area full of sunken ships. Now, let's talk about that. They just see sunken ships all over the place. Now, the dragon turtle did not sink ships in just one spot. Which means the turtle brought the ships here. And threw them all in one area. Almost like a trash can. Now, they start to look around a little bit. There's absolutely no treasure or loot anywhere on any of these ships. Because dragon turtles are also magical. And they, like other dragons, hoard loot. Uh, So there's not going to be anything of value on any of these ships. They figured... I made that clear pretty, pretty quickly. Um, uh, Anything of value was taken by the turtle. So as they are searching and trying to cross through this boat graveyard... Some of the boats not looking like they've been there that long. Maybe six to eight months. Some of them have been here a little bit longer for sure. There's still lots of fish and things, but nothing big. As they're traveling through the area, well, about that time, they can hear noises within some of the ships. They hear sounds like tapping and banging lightly, not loudly. And they hear noises coming from some of the other ships. Well, they're like, oh great, zombies. Zombies. There are zombies in the ships. They prepare to fight some zombies, but it is not zombies that start coming out of the ships, that start crawling out of holes and out of broken windows and across decks. What they find instead, for the record turtle, uh, something I concocted to throw at them, sea spiders. Sea spiders, which average three to four feet in length of legs With a body with not one but two cents of pinchers. A larger one and a smaller one that's even sharper. That's used to saw through things. Mostly carrion feeders. um, Which of course you can imagine there's a lot of dead things in the ships once they sink. They don't mind chewing on the living either. So they start coming out of all the ships. Now, for the record, sea spiders are actually um, not spiders. They're actually a form of crustacean, uh, by my own design. But I, I call them sea spiders, because they look like spiders. Uh, but they really only have six legs, and they're crustaceans. Um, uh, they feed off living local fish life, as well as the carrion and stuff. Like a spider crab, kind of, but without big claws. doesn't have that. It has long, and all, all six of its legs have talons on the end of them. And they can walk on all six, or they can lift two up for grabbing. And it's got a big pincer and a small pincer, much like a spider does. And the big one is somewhat sharp, but it's just meant to grab and hold, and that causes pain, while the bottom one just starts sawing through whatever they're eating. Jaggedy sawing kind of thing. (laughs) Something like that. I, I, I like the design. I went with it. Uh, and in my mind, it was kind of like the movies sometimes when you have a, a spaceship and all of a sudden all these creatures start coming out of the vents and stuff, and you're running, and there's all these things. That was kind of the mental picture I had, but underwater with larger things. So they uh, start being attacked by a large amount of sea spiders, and they have to try to fight them off and get through this boat graveyard. But we'll talk about that next week. Because it's 10.30. And uh, I had one extra long episode a couple weeks ago. So I decided... I have not seen The Mandalorian Turtle. I wouldn't be able to speak to that. So uh, I haven't seen anything Star Wars since the prequels. So I couldn't tell you much there. Um, But yeah, we're going to end that here. Um, We'll deal with this. And then we'll talk about the next section. Which I cleverly named... Enter the dragon, dot, 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 turtle. Because again, now that I get to share these with you guys, nobody else has ever seen these but me. So I call this next section, enter the dragon, turtle. Uh, It it entertains me, I don't care. So so how they get out of this mess, this underwater pickle fish that they find themselves in, uh, we will find out next time. Because definitely Morik is not going to be running real fast underwater. And for the record, Morik does not wear robes; he wears loose pants and a baggy shirt. Underwater, sometimes not even the shirt. Uh, but he does wear lots of—he has lots of belt pouches, and he has a thing that crosses his chest that he has pouches on that hold his spell components and things. Uh, he wouldn't; he, those are waterproof on purpose because he works on a ship. Uh, but that's kind of the design for him. So I'm in some kind of weird science anatomy video. Oh, God, no. Excellent. <laughs> but I uh, hope that's it's not a huge cliffhanger. It's just a little fight. <laughs> Drink on pickle fish. There you go. Yeah, they find themselves in a pickle fish. Um, <laughs> but yes, so I think that's a good place to stop. I'm trying to keep a little bit closer to two and a half hours. Um, again, we're only a few episodes. This is only going to last a few episodes. And then we'll be stepping into brand new... Never heard before content of Merge Worlds stuff that I've bounced a couple ideas off of my friend Mike in Canada who taught me how to play D I bounced a couple ideas off my wife because she has no idea what I'm talking about, and it was too it was long before she had any interest in playing D and D, so she doesn't remember any of it. I've tried to ask her. Uh, the only person who knows some of it is Mike in Canada, which that's how we call Mike, Mike in Canada, because I know Mike's down here too. Um, but uh, I'm excited to finally throw some of that at you guys... And see how you guys respond. You know what I mean? Potentially new villains. Revelations on old villains. The next generation of heroes. I have a lot of exciting things in store to share with you all. Such delights I will show you. (laughs) But I'm going to call that one for today... So I do appreciate everybody who came by and listened to this. If you had a good time, please remember to click like, whether you're watching this today or 10 years down the road. It would be awesome if you would. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify, thank you so much for checking out the audio version. The video versions of this can be found on my YouTube channel, Only Draven Gaming. If you'd like to look at those, you can find more information about it on my website. OnlyDraven.com, and if you'd like to see me streaming different video games, which I usually don't mind talking D&D and Merge World stuff in those as well, come on by there. You can find me on Twitch at OnlyDravenGaming, all one word, no spaces, no lowercase. I stream just about six days a week. Uh, so it would be fun to find there. Again, info on all of that stuff can be found on my website. But thank you very much for coming. As always, special thank you to all of you who are my members here and subscribers on Twitch and all the wonderful folks who donated. We got a $20 donation from Rat today. I appreciate that. All of you who have been help supporting the channel and helping me make it grow, I appreciate that. As well, of course, all my moderators for all the hard, hard work they do. Um, but I'll be back here again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for uh, some more Merge Worlds action. I hope you will join me. Uh, Other than that, you'll find me on Twitch tomorrow night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Alright? Alright, everybody. Thank you very much for letting me tell my story once again. I hope you all have yourself a wonderful evening.